right club. Be the right club today. Yeah. I mean, that's better than most. How about him? That is better than most. Better than most. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the No Laying Up podcast. Solly here. This is not a recap podcast from this past weekend. It is Labor Day weekend. We have recorded this episode in advance. We record on Friday right before the weekend. We're releasing it on Sunday night ahead of Labor Day. If you are traveling, hopefully you'll enjoy this listen. Kevin Van Valkenburg and I dove into the last four European Ryder Cups and laughed a lot at the hilarious fails by the United States team and dove into all kinds of stuff. Then we do a lot of these. Uh, if you're new to this, we do a series of uh, major championship lookbacks and we were getting ready to publish our 1996 majors. And we said, wait a second here. This Ryder Cup thing might be uh, might be a little bit more topical. A lot of Ryder Cup stuff to react to. We're going to record an episode with the uh, the Ryder Cup four, as many people are calling us uh, on Tuesday. Get TC's full download, of course, on his triumphant day. I think that one's going to be must listen stuff. I have a feeling that one that one might pipe off, pop off a little bit. This episode is brought to you by our friends at Title. It's the number one ball in golf, and I have to read this. I, I you you do quote gotta hand it to him. Uh, the choice of Vision Fund extraordinaire Ludwig Aberg, uh, which I also heard we've been saying Aberg wrong, which we might that might be on TC. We might need to hold him to the fire on that if that is wrong. Ludwig gained more than 15 shots tee to green this week to win the Omega European Masters. I'm just going to go ahead and say that he's going to be a Ryder Cup pick as I record this on Sunday evening. Uh, I that is not reporting it as news, but I would be absolutely stunned if that was not the case. While TC plays the Pro V1, I really thought he admired uh, Ludwig more than this, but TC plays the Pro V1. Ludwig plays the Pro V1X. He likes to put spin on the ball, prefers the higher flight of the X coming into firm greens You know that they face out on the Pro Tours that we don't necessarily face. He loves the extra spin that Pro V1X gives him around the greens. If you're not fit for a golf ball, if you've never consulted with anybody about what kind of golf ball you should be playing, you are losing shots. I can promise you that. My favorite story to tell is Casey, our, our resident higher handicapper, for, not for very long, she's on her way down, kind of had the feeling that she shouldn't be playing Pro V1 just because she was a 20-plus handicap. She learned about the Pro V1X, has learned, has been able to hold greens now, has able to get more loft into the greens and able to hold more greens thanks to the Pro V1X golf ball. Choosing the right golf ball is all about flight, spin, and feel. Titleist has a choice for every player looking to play their best. Head to Titleist.com to find out which ball is right for your game. Let's get to the pod. The Homer jingoistic Americans are here to regale the tales of triumphs from the United States side in the Ryder Cup, we are going to recap the last four times the United States has crossed the Atlantic Ocean to do battle with our European counterparts. Surely it went really well, and there's not any trends that we'll see over these four. My name is Solly, joining me as always on these recaps, doing a little break up from our major championship ones to do a Ryder Cup one as we uh, as we descend on Rome here in the coming weeks. Kevin Van Valkenburg, hello KBV, how are you? Sally, I'm doing great. I have a rain suit here with me that uh, is totally permeable. Uh, I wanted to make sure I got the full experience. Uh, and so the water is going to run right through it uh, and sink into my skin. I We kind of came up with this idea a little bit on a whim this past week, and I cannot believe we haven't thought to do this before. Um, I know we did an oral history of the Ryder Cup back in 2018 that covers some of this but i think we've got a little bit better at mining information and digging stuff up and reliving it and if you remember everything from five years ago and want to turn this off that's totally fine but also we need to look back at 2018 which was not included in that one and that's going to be one that, that you're covering but 
oh man, is it even worse than I remember? (laughs) I I lived through this. I mean, I literally covered, this is the first one of these, these kind of recaps that I covered the event. And I was just like in awe of how much I had forgotten already of how much sort of fun had unspooled. Uh, Someone at some point said in the 2018 one, we really need like a 30 for 30 about this. And I totally agree. Like you could make a great, like real documentary about what a disaster the 2018 Ryder Cup was. I don't think you needed to clarify the year in that, right? Because 2014, you can make a documentary about that one. I'm sure there probably will be one at some point. Uh, and yeah, gosh, we're going to start. We, so yeah, to recap, we're going to do 2006, 2010, 2014, and 2018 Ryder Cups. We're going to alternate on them. We could have gone farther back, could have done 97, could have done uh, 2002. Those were also U.S. losing efforts, but uh, I, I don't, I, maybe that's a reason we should have done it. I don't have a ton of memories from that. I don't think those were as spectacular disasters as what has happened the last four times, which I think the closest, uh, the U S has been, I mean, obviously Celtic Manor was very close. I guess I was about to speak out of my ass there, but otherwise the closest was 16 and a half, 11 and a half, uh, in 2014, which is stark. That's it's, it's amazing. Celtic Manor and, and Medina, of course, were the last two close Ryder cups, but I don't know any macro takeaways before we dive into 2006. Yeah, it's, I don't know, it's it's funny to think about this stuff. Uh, and it was actually really educational for me just because of the conversations that we were having this week about chemistry and match play and whether there's a buddy system and all that stuff. And you can see, it, it seemed like going into 18 that they had sort of eliminated some of the mistakes that had previously built up to that. And I think uh, even the coverage of uh, some of the predictions that I'll enjoyably get into uh, <laughs> oh, no. were like, oh, yeah, the U.S. has got this figured out. Like, I'm confident that they've got this figured out. And it is clear, like, they did not have it figured out. And so it's a good lesson, I think, as we think about Italy, about whether the Americans really do have a, a better plan this time. I think they do. And I think that learning from the mistakes of the past is always uh, helpful, whether it's history or whether it's sports. Um, but I'm... I don't know. I mean, I, you can see some of the things sort of slowly unfolding and and always in retrospect, it seems like, oh, no kidding. Of course, like Phil Mickelson was a bad fit for this. Yeah. But so many things kind of, uh, you know, happened in the lead up to that, that it would made it impossible to almost say like, oh, yeah, of course, like even you and I uh, did not predict as, as much as we were sort of Phil skeptics uh, when it comes to the Ryder Cup did not predict that it would be as uh, a mess as it was. And uh I don't know. It's, it is also fun for me to look back at some of the people who like defended Phil and now hate his guts uh, from the live stuff. And I, I can sort of, you can see, you know, just the way that his reputation was kind of still beloved back then and how polarizing it is now. So that's one of the things that I took away from, I think, I, did I, even at all. I think there's going to be a lot of Phil was right in this and not sarcastically. I mean, I, I, well, as much as I think a lot of what Phil has said in recent years is bullshit, a lot of what he said around the Ryder Cup, mm-hmm. I find myself nodding with. And uh, I got some some quotes from some interviews we've done over the years that we're going to sprinkle in. If, if people are tuning into this right now and looking for a little bit of insight into how, you know, maybe, maybe we can start with some of the Italy stuff as we as we go into that to say the U.S. process has evolved. And I think hopefully we can lay a little bit of that out as we go from 2014. We're not going to cover 2016 in this, but into 2018, it has definitely evolved before that. I don't know if you can point to any one thing in 2018 that's like here's what went wrong here i I imagine it's a combination of a lot of things i i I 
think most is mostly lack of preparation for that golf course. It's really interesting here. Wh what I think uh, as we sit here now, people were asking for some, kind of some reaction from us from a couple of people were for uh, the captain's picks. And I was kind of of the opinion, like, Hey man, I think we kind of covered the captain's picks on the U S side pretty adequately over the coming weeks, uh, recent weeks. Sam Burns was a little bit of a surprise. I think um, for a lot of us, mainly because we put a lot of weight in Cam Young or the, the Fred couples, Cam Young statement from July, which I know I personally did. I kind of just said, all right, well, that he must obviously know something, but that was a bit of a surprise. But I, I guess I've been a little surprised at how stark the backlash is for these captain's picks uh, from alleged U.S. fans. Like, it, it, I'm a U.S. fan. I root for the U.S. team. U.S. fans on social media make me not want to root for this team. Like, it is, I mean, I, I get it. There's a lot of fed up and, and pent up energy after losing six of these in Europe in a row, but man, it seems like a really, really, really short memory for how dominant that team was in 2021 and how this roughly the same group of guys has taken it upon themselves to change the culture, change the way they've done things and have been successful so far in a short, small sample size. And this is the first time this team without Phil, without Tiger is crossing over the Atlantic. Only four of these guys, I think, have played, maybe five, I forget, have played in a European Ryder Cup before. And it just seems like American golf fans have absolutely no patience or trust in how they're putting this together. Like, no, no weight in like the fact that, hey, maybe since 2014, things have evolved in this. And I think 2018 has a lot to do with that. I think my big takeaway too is that no matter how many times you try to sort of say, hey, match play is just different. Like, you, you know, a lot of the reason why Justin Thomas is not playing right now is well right now is because he's making a bunch of dumb like doubles and mistakes. And like that doesn't matter as much in match play. And you have to take on risks that you might not otherwise take on in stroke play. And it's just the emotion of it is it's extremely different. And I think over and over and over again, as you look at these next four, like these four Ryder Cups that we're going to look at, that's the biggest takeaway for me is like match play, just a different beast, man. Different. And like if you think that like stroke play, it does not matter how many I feel like we do this every two years. Where someone's like, oh, you gotta take this guy. He just won the Northern Trust. He just won the Genesis. He just won this. No, nah, man, like that it really doesn't matter that much. Like it just doesn't. And I, I think that education, it it drives people crazy, but I think we're still gonna keep making those points because I think that we believe in it, you know. And I think what I have a lot of pent up angst about a lot of this. And I think the thing I'm most angst about is the the really disingenuous stuff I read about. So like, what's your, what is your thing about how you would put a guy on the team? Is it stats? No. Or is it gut? What is it? It's like, no, no one would be that black and white about all of this. It's an extremely gray process. There's like, I don't know, weight the percentages of how you would want to do it, but team chemistry factors into this fit for the golf course factors into it. Chemistry, like not only like do the, these two guys like each other and get along and provide good energy together, do their games complement each other in a partner format or Hey, do they tend to birdie the same holes? If that's the case, then they're probably not going to play together in four ball or Hey, if blah, blah, blah's distance and accuracy off the tee is going to play well on these odd holes. And so-and-so's putting is going to, you know, play into that blah, blah, blah. I don't know how to match all that stuff up. I don't have the answers to so much of that, but what I do have is a trust in the U.S.'s process way more than I have in the past. I've dug in a lot of into how it actually comes together, how they involve consultants and, and statistics and how they do uh, scenario planning and all kinds of stuff to say like, hey, 
I can't sit here and like scream that Keegan Bradley should be on this team or that Cameron Young got screwed over or that JT shouldn't. Like they're looking at a different set of information than we are. They've come up with, they have, you know, I'm looking at 1% of what they have. And I think Ben Coley or Ben Colley, I don't know how to say it. Sorry, bud. He, uh, he said it on Twitter of like, it only like makes sense, it, you know, to like scream about the JT pick if you ignore all the positives that would come from with Justin Thomas, only focus on the negatives and whoever the backup quarterback is here, ignore all the negatives that would come with that person and look only at the positives. And that was a light bulb moment for me of like, I think a lot of U.S. fans have a ton of backup quarterback syndrome right now and are are preemptively ready to say like whoever was going to get cut off. Maybe if if Keegan made it and and Sam Burns didn't to look at it and say like, oh, they're screwed because they left this guy off. That's, I think American fans are conditioned to think that way at this point. I think one thing that I took away from covering football, and I used to have conversations with the Ravens coach John Harbaugh about, Harbaugh about this, is that I would always say, look, like this is what I think I see, but I also need to like acknowledge that I cannot possibly pretend like I know as much about this as you. And I think that there's, I hope that that sort of attitude in general like brings credibility because I'm literally not going to sit and watch like 30 hours of film. I'm not going to have access to 10,000 data points and all different kinds of things that can show me like, all right, like Sam Burns would be a better fit than Keegan Bradley on this. Like I publicly have sort of advocated for, I wish Keegan had gotten a look. I think he brings an emotion to, you know, the Ryder cup. I, I sentimentally would love to see him get another shot, but in the end, like, he didn't play well enough to to merit it. And probably if Brian Harmon hadn't won the British Open, I think Keegan is more likely to get, you know, that last spot. And they would have figured out a way to use him. But that's that's how it works with that's what happens when you have guys two guys win majors who otherwise probably are not on the team in Wyndham and 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 Harmon. I think Wyndham will be a good player there. I don't know about Harmon, but I think that's probably the most realistic understanding of why Keegan isn't on this team is because some surprise guys won majors, and they're there. I think Kyle made this point. the The payout for the majors is so weighted now this uh, year. All the you know so fucked points <laughs> that I'm not sure the system is quite able to handle that sort of huge influx of points that came with all the increase, you know, purse sizes this year. And and that was something that was kind of an unknown that popped in, and hopefully it'll work for the US's benefit. But you know, if it doesn't, then they're going to have to think about that for you know, Adair or for Beth page. And again, my thinking on this has evolved over the years. I don't know how much your has as yours has as well, but I will play. I'm going to play in the course of this interview, uh, in the course of this podcast, a five minute interview clip from Paul McGinley that transformed my thinking on the Ryder cup forever. Like I used to think, yeah, just get the 12 best talented guys and go play. Like, and I'm like, yeah, I think the U S has tried that one. How's that worked out? And we're going to go into how captaincy has played a difference in a lot of this stuff. And I think the U S does have to own like playing shitty golf at, at a lot of points, but like look at how Paul McGinley handled Graham McDowell and Victor Dubuisson. I've referenced this a million times because it's like, yeah, maybe is it a little revisionist history and I love Paul McGinley, but is he maybe pat himself a little bit on the back for how it all played out? Sure. But like, look at this plan for how he was going to come up with one of these pairings. And then we're going to get to how Tom Watson did it. And like, if you were looking for a mystery as to how it's gotten to this point and how it's gone, this is the answer right here. Like, this is a glimpse into it right now. Paul McGinley had a plan for Victor Dubuisson and Graham McDowell. And Tom Watson couldn't remember on Saturday afternoon who he – or on Friday afternoon who he sent out in the foursomes. He, like, was asked about, like, who he subbed in for Spieth and, and Reed, and he couldn't name the pairing. Like, that was the stark – like, you couldn't get more polar opposites as to how it was handled. And 
I know a lot of people scream about, you know, it's a small sample size and none of this stuff matters and all that. But like, man, I really do feel transformed. Maybe a lot of people are going to hear this and say, oh, you're just like advocating for the boys club because blah, blah, blah. I don't even know. I can't even like fathom the reasons of it. But like, man, I could say with extreme, extreme confidence after digging into how they've done this, like it's way more complicated than what people are making out to be on social media. I can promise you that. I see from people I respect, I'm seeing a lot of stuff about just like a boys club. And it's like, man, I, I, I promise you there's more to it than that. I don't know what else I could say other than like, I promise you they didn't get in a room and we're like, ah, I'm friends with Sam Burns, Scotty, she- Scotty, Sheff, I'm friends with Sam, Sam Burns and I want to play with him, put him on the team. I promise more went into it than that. I'm mostly on your side on this. I still think that you have to make some exception for like, all right, like Justin Thomas is he's of the kind of guys who helped change the Ryder cup for us, who helped change our fortunes. He gets a pass in a way that Sergio got a pass. So I'll talk about in 18, like he wasn't playing well. And I, Sergio was actually playing a little better than JT. Uh, and he got named to the team and it was sort of minorly controversial, but not truly in the way that JT has been. And I think, but that's okay. Like ultimately we empower a captain to make decisions, right. To put together a team. It's funny. I was talking to my wife about this and she, you know, she doesn't really follow sports that much but she's been in like management leadership stuff. And she was like, of course you put together a team. Like, why would you just like put together a bunch of talented people? Like that's like to a layman. I think it's easier to understand in some ways of like, yeah, you want people who work well together, right? Like not just sort of be sullen and hit the ball. And, and like tiger's the biggest example of that over the last 20 years. Like it just hasn't worked. And the sample size for tiger is big enough that it actually is. I feel like pretty definitive that you can't just be like super duper talented and think that it's going to work out every time. Who, who is widely known as one of the great cap us captains over the past 30 40 years who comes to mind azinger what what how did he fill out his pods what did he, what what did he do with his pods put like-minded people together so that they could uh sort of you know feed off of each other's energy and how did they fill out the captain's picks what what, what was his process for that uh i believe he asked the like the sort of best guy in each pod like who do you want to play with who would fit in with your group crew why is that not a buddy's a boys system or a, a <laughs> boys club or a buddy system yeah help me with that logic right like he's why like again that's that's the part where you're looking in hindsight of like oh they won like that was a great idea right and it's like man it, it it i think they're not really following that method per se but i that's where i don't understand the criticism of the boys club is like hey the best team chemistry we've had on any team or the team that i like, pulled off an upset you know, blah, blah, blah. And it is widely lauded as Azinger for this, this format. And yet if, even if they were running that back, people would still be mad about it. I don't know. It's well, and the boys club has certainly worked out well for Europe. Like, you know, they, they absolutely pick guys who are like, Hey, who do you want to play with? And, and the only time they get into trouble is when someone they don't really want to be on the team qualifies like Victor, and then they figure out a way to make it work. And that's how I view like the read stuff too. Is is if you look at 2014, like Spieth babysitting him, 2016 Spieth babysitting him, and then as soon as you broke up Reed and Spieth, like your problem child acted out. Tiger Woods wasn't good, like a big enough name for Reed to play with. He wanted to play with Spieth, and as soon as it went wrong, it went really wrong. Like they just did not have. I don't even know if you can come up with a plan for Reed, but uh, I think that that speaks to that. I don't know. It's it's an inexact science. Again, I do not know what's going to happen in Italy. I'll say this 25 times leading up to it. I, 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 I don't know if they're going to win, but I, I feel as confident in how they've gone about it as I have in a long time. Was I, I'm sure you're going to bring up some quotes for me leading into 2018, where I also felt very confident and that didn't work out great. I don't have a leg to stand on in this other than to say like, 
I I'm willing to give this group a shot at, I, I don't want to, I don't want to like pin the tiger Phil era of Ryder cups on this group of guys. I, I just think that that's a little unfair way. I'm sure they're going to feel it, but I, I think that that American fans have, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's wild. It's been really, I don't even know if like American fans are rooting for the, I think they want the U S to lose so we can laugh at them again, as we're about to do over these last four. I, I mean, we, I think we need to remember too. It's the, the sample size of this is like people who are on Twitter who are, you know, antagonistic in a lot of ways because of habitually the online. You know? Yes. <laughs> yeah. They, they want to see Justin Thomas and Max Homa fail. Uh, somehow they both want Rory to fail and JT to fail, which seems like a, a compromised position to be on both that because of the, the live stuff. And I, I don't know how you square that in your mind. I had somebody like at me, like today, the other day saying, you know, the only reason that Max home is on the team is because he's good at like ass kissing in politics. I was like, he fucking qualified <laughs> like, he was an automatic qualifier. So I'm not sure how that quite squares with your theory, but keep working on it and we'll see. So. Yeah. I'm excited to find out, man. It's uh I I would be surprised the more I've dug into this, I'd be surprised if it was a blowout either way. I would be surprised on either one of those. Um, if the U.S. gets trounced, I would be shocked. And if the U.S. trounced them, I would be shocked. I think we are truly due for a close Ryder Cup. But Will there even be fairways at Marcus Mount? Tell you, will they, just, they just grow it all out so it's all rough and there's just like a you know random, like if you can find your ball, you win the hole or not? Hopefully people have gotten a chance to watch our film room on it. Uh, my favorite comments I've been reading in there is like, this is what you guys have been asking for for a golf course and now you hate it. Let me be very clear. What? Not once have I ever <laughs> asked for anything in remote, remotely close to what we're going to see at Marcos Simone. Uh, really crazy, weird dog legs that narrowed like 12 yards in the dog legs and waist high rough shortly off the fairway. Uh, what, like four or five really fun match play holes, I think, but mostly a disaster of a golf course. And I, I hope it doesn't play as big of a story as I think it will. I might be clouded by the fact that I am not an accurate driver and had a horrible time there. And it's a horrible course for amateurs and the pros might make it look very, very, very different. There's like, there's plenty of scorable holes that, you know, the under par score doesn't really, it's not like, you know, I know it's match play, but it's not like guys are going to shoot 10 over out there, but I don't know if the course is going to play as much of a factor as it did in 2018. I'll say that. Like, I think it's a different, different style of golf course in that regard. All right, you ready to get into it? We're going to do it in order. I have 20, 2006 and 2014. You have blessed me with the Tom Watson year. You have 2010 and 2018. Uh, we are going 2006. Do you remember where we go in 2006? Uh, actually, because of the K Club? We are at the K Club for yeah. the first time, a Ryder Cup in Ireland. The captains are Tom Lehman versus Ian Woosnam. Um, if you'll remember, Darren Clark had just lost his wife a few months earlier, I think six weeks earlier uh, before the Ryder Cup. Um, that was a, a big storyline and a big uh, presence that, you know, kind of permeated throughout it is a lot of standing ovations for Darren Clark when he got to tease and a lot of emotion from him, very understandably, but that was a, a big story. Tom Lehman brought his team to Ireland at the end of August for two days of practice, determined to end nearly two decades of frustration in the Ryder Cup. This was seen as a big deal. They all flew together on a charter, uh, which was seen as a huge deal. As Tiger rearranged plans for it. See, like he does care. Like he, he cares. cares. The guy cares. He took his first commercial flight since 1998 in order to be there uh, to catch the charter. Mr. Woods, you're in uh, 13A. Uh, <laughs> Tiger Woods and Jim Furyk uh, end up arriving separately to the Ryder Cup after uh, losing in the first round of the HSBC World Match Play Championship the week before at Wentworth. Uh, Woods stayed over in England attending the Chelsea Liverpool soccer 
soccer game, soccer match, I believe, on Sunday. Uh, Furyk came over to the K Club to practice earlier. Team got off the plane in all brown. All brown outfits. I don't know why they were so set on these browns. Maybe it was an ode to the Dockers man himself, Mr. Tom Lehman. But <laughs> their fits this week were a total disgrace. And they they set the tone right from the beginning, uh, getting off of the plane uh, in all brown. The Euros were still not ready. Seven years later, not ready to let 1999 go. They've, they've won 2002 and 2004. And they're still unhappy about 99. Uh, they're not happy about the fact that the captain of the U.S. team is none other than the swashbuckling Dockers-wearing instigator that is Tom Lehman. This is credit to the Guardian here. Paul Casey said, I stand by my words. His appointment could affect the atmosphere of the match. I don't think people on this side of the Atlantic want to see him as captain. We've had a very, very good rivalry since 99, and I think people are afraid that it might bring up Brookline-esque, a Brookline-type situation at the K-Club. Tom's name will be forever, will be one of those mentioned when you talk to players who were at Brookline and they thought the spirit there wasn't right. Dug in a little bit about what, do you know what they're referring to? No, I, I, I don't. I mean, I remember Lehman being sort of like overly political a little bit and kind of, uh, you know, be jingoistic, but I don't remember raising why he would have drawn the ire of the, the Euros in 99. He led the spectators in a God bless America cheer on the first tee. That was one okay. thing. And he was like the fifth or sixth player to run onto the 17th green after Leonard's putt. Sam Torrance said, fifth or six. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sam Torrance said, and he calls himself a man of God. Oh, that's right. <laughs> I do remember that quote. <laughs> As if like the non-Christian thing to do would have been <laughs> to, to run that. onto the green and the more Christian. Oh, gentlemen. gentlemen. He calls himself a man of God. Uh, Luke Donald, who was Casey's playing partner, supported Casey's stance. Donald, who has a home in Chicago after spending four years in university there, said, I think people who are not Americans can get upset with Americans quite easily. They do seem to be very insular. They make rash comments that can be, can be quite upsetting at times. I heard Ryan Palmer, a U.S. amateur champion, say the nationwide tour, the second tour in the U.S., is the second strongest in the world. And that was days after Europe thrashed the U.S. 18 to 9 in the Ryder Cup. Those kind of comments force people like Paul to say what he says. Uh, Scott Verplank said of Paul Casey, I didn't know he was a member of our tour, but if he's really that uncomfortable or annoyed or anything, I don't think anyone would miss him if he went back to England. Kind of an all over, kind of all over the place quote there. I don't really know what we were getting at with that one, Mister Verplank, but I'm sure that uh, is one of the comments that Luke Donald is referring to. So, Tom Lehman would say, "Without question, we will go to Ireland as the underdogs." Yet you think, Tom, because we're going to read off the list of your team. You have zero players in your 20s. Your youngest player on the team is Tiger Woods. You have the one and two and three players in the world: Tiger, Phil, and Jim Furyk. The rest of the team is made up of Chad Campbell. David Toms, Chris DeMarco, Vaughn Taylor, J.J. Henry, Brett Wetterick, Zach Johnson, and then the captain's picks are Stuart Sink and Scott Verplank. Tigers results going into this event. T2 at the Western Open. That was the worst one. He won the <laughs> Open Championship. That's right. He Doing won sick. the Buick Open. He won the PGA Championship. He won the Bridgestone. He won the Deutsche Bank. Tour Championship was after the Ryder Cup, and he skipped it. But that was his record leading up into the 2006 Ryder Cup. But I think he started the next year winning a bunch of events as well. Like the only event he lost for like a seven-month span was the 2006 Ryder Cup. Sorry to spoil the result of this one. 
Um, of course, Von Taylor, J.J. Henry, and Brett Wedrick made the team on points. J.J. Henry, Henry won the Buick Championship, had five top tens. Von Taylor's best finish was a T3. He had six top tens. Brett Wedrick won the Byron Nelson and finished T2 at the Memorial. Um, I believe he was the first person to go from Q School to the Ryder Cup in the same year. I think a lot of this speaks to a, at least a reason why the U.S. has really struggled in Ryder Cups. There was just a total talent gap for a significant period of time, a period of time that Tiger dominated of like, dude, there was just no American players. There was none. Like Davis Love was the biggest snub on this team. And even he was, you know, in his 30s and a little bit past his prime, I think. Um, Makes me, it speaks to that, like Andy Johnson theory about that these, you know, Phil, Tiger, Furyk, those guys grew up playing Persimmons and then had to learn how to play Metalwoods. But it's like the, the generation between Tiger and and Dustin Johnson like struggled to figure out that transition, right? They just, they were not, the talent gap wasn't there, obviously, but like they couldn't handle the difference in ball changes, the difference in club changes, whatever. And it took a whole another, like a whole gap of guys to figure out like they grew up playing a different set of clubs and then all the, and then they figured it out. But that, I mean, that speaks to, that makes more sense to me now when you lay it out like that, like, when Brent Retrick and like for Plank are two of your best guys of that. <laughs> Brent Retrick. It's Brett Wedrick, but I love Brett the idea. Sorry, Brett. Okay, I love the idea. I don't disrespect Brent you. Wittrick. You've been probably better at golf than I've ever been at anything in my life. But uh, for now, Audi will be Brent Wietrich, that's for sure. Um, I don't remember this one, but uh on the European side, um, this is I believe from The Guardian. It says this the small band of critics who believe Ian Wisdom is not up to the job of captaining Europe's Ryder Cup team lost their outspoken leader yesterday when Thomas Bjorn who on Sunday described the Welshman as pathetic and barmy, issued a <laughs> groveling public apology. It cut little ice with the European tour, who fined the Dane a five-figure sum for his unacceptable outburst. The unacceptable outburst was, the man is barmy, and to be captain and not communicate with a team or those in contention at all. I haven't spoken to him for six months, and I found out that I'm not in the team by watching it on television. He's not burdened by too many leadership qualities. My relationship with him is completely dead and will remain so. Wow. Sick. I love that. Bjorn would come back and say, having had a day to reflect on my comments, I realize I, I've made a mistake and as such have unreservedly apologized to Ian for my comments, which were made in the heat of the moment following the disappointment of not making it on the European team. His comments came shortly after discovering he'd been passed over in favor of Darren Clark and Lee Westwood for the two captain's picks on the European team to face the U.S. Uh, Bjorn also said he's the most pathetic captain I've ever known, uh, but he apologized for it. So. <laughs> Well, and the people think that like Americans knife their captains. I mean, come on. Uh, we'll get Europeans to that in 2014 too. too. Yeah. There's some drama in 2014 too. But um, Doug Ferguson's preview said, never mind that the Americans counter with a one, two, three punch of Woods, Fierke, and Mickelson, the top three players in the world ranking, or that Americans have captured 20 of the last 28 major championships since their last Ryder Cup victory in 99, raise the flags, play the national anthems, and Europe turns into a world beater. Europe long has rallied around the perceptions that its players are inferior, that its tour is like a second-class citizen. They have played the underdog card for so long and so effectively that they are now trying to convince everyone they have no chance. Can you, off the top of your head, as fast as you can answer, when was the last time a European had won a major? As of the 2006 Ryder Cup, when was the most recent one? This shocked me. And I didn't double-check it. I, I think it's true. Pa I mean, I would have said Patrick, but I think that came later. Nope, that right? was after. So that was 07 and 08. Yeah, I don't. God, uh, was it Faldo? Paul Laurie in '99. It had been wow. seven years since a European had won a major, and I, I know I said the Americans have captured twenty of the last twenty-eight, and I said there was a, a talent gap in the U.S. 
think about how many of those were Tiger and Phil because right. they were. It was it was a fair amount. I think Tiger had won seven or eight. Probably to that ten point. of those are Tiger yeah. and Phil together. I know Furyk won one in there. Mickelson won two of those. Um, From two thousand six, it would have been he won. Right, he won three of them. One yeah. and four, and then two of them in six. Right. He won. Um, he almost no, won. He won 05 PGA and then 06 right. Masters. So he had yeah. won three majors to that point. So yeah, but um, practice rounds. Weather was so bad on Wednesday. Trees fell down the course. Everyone was pulled off the course for hours. When the U.S. team did return to the course, it was blowing so hard they were only practicing short shots. Uh, the European fans booed them for that, forcing Lehman to apologize for not putting on a show for the fans, which is very fun. We get to Friday morning four ball. Guess who's there to do the opening tee shot announcing? I don't really remember this with Ryder Cups, but 2006. Would this have been like David Beckham? I, Our I old it. friend Ivor Robson is there to do the opening tee shot. Hey, Chris Solomon. Team USA, Jim Furyk. Jim Furyk and Tiger Woods go up against Colin Montgomery and Padraig Harrington. This whole match is on YouTube. Again, disgrace PJ of America and European Tour. I'm going to put you guys on blast for this one too. Like, we need some old Ryder Cup stuff on YouTube. We need it badly. It's really disjointed, but this one is all on there. I watch most of it like on a, on a speed uh, watch, but Europeans are wearing some sharp green Irish sweaters. Uh, it's wild how much the first tee atmosphere has changed. I mean, it's packed. There's an atmosphere there, but I mean, the grandstand's 15 rows or something like that. And wait until people see what it's going to be in Italy. Like it is a, it's a Coliseum. It's enormous. I think there's going to be 5,000 fans packed around the first tee in bleachers. Um, Tiger hits fairway wood, hooks it in the water immediately. Uh, Furyk makes birdie. The U.S. wins the whole. Tiger is very stinky early on, um, but I'm not going to bore you with the details of the of the whole match. Jim Furyk is clutch on the 18th hole, hits it uh, the par five and two right after Monty does. They were one up. Tiger had missed the fairway. Uh, Furyk two putts, and the U.S. wins the match. That is the only match on this day that the United States team will win. Seven of the eight matches go down to the last hole, and the U.S. fucked up almost all of them. Uh, other than the Tiger and Furyk one, Paul Casey and Robert Carlson have their match with uh, Stuart Sink and J.J. Henry, the Purple Mamba. Uh, Sergio and Jose Maria beat David Toms and Brett Wetterick or Brent Whitrick, uh, three and two. Darren Clark and Lee Westwood beat Phil Mickelson and Chris DeMarco one up. It's amazing how much the Americans had a habit of like losing the 18th hole. Oh, for, it like it's just, you, you see it in Ryder Cups. Literally, you go back when we were looking at some of like the 86 Ryder Cups and like the one in Muirfield Village where they just they kept losing the 18th hole. They had these matches that were winnable and they just pissed it away. And that was a huge difference. It looks like some of them, you know, like were, were wider margins, but like you flip those, like you split those 18th hole matches and all of a sudden it's like that Ryder Cup is extremely close. Medina, go back. I, I think I, if I remember right, the five matches that flipped, the Europeans won 17 and 18, I think like nine out of 10 times or something like that. I mean, it, it's, it's, they needed, to, if they just split the 17 and the 18 holes, U.S. would have won Medina easily, easily. Um, afternoon foursomes, Padraig Harrington and Paul McGinley have with, um, with uh, Campbell and ZJ. Howell and Stenson have their match with Sink and Toms. Westwood and Montgomery have their match with Mickelson and DeMarco. And Donald and Garcia beat Tiger and Furyk two up. Europe ends day one, leading five to three. Um, a line that in the Chicago Tribune that says it all says, the only American that really shined Friday was J.J. Henry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Love that. You can probably get an extension to his, uh, like, you know, his card for that now these days. He could use his Ryder <laughs> Cup exemption. To, he was named in the Chicago, the Chicago Tribune uh, exemption. <laughs> Uh, Saturday, both teams arrived wearing dark slacks and blue shirts, unplanned. Uh, 
The, the Americans had to put on black sweaters so you could tell the teams apart. The Europeans changed into lavender tops in the afternoon. Paul Casey and Robert Carlson have with uh, Stuart Sink and J.J. Henry. Sergio and Jose Maria beat Mickelson and DeMarco 3-2. and two. Clark and Westwood beat Woods uh, and Furick 3-2. and two. Verplank and Z.J. beat uh, Stenson and Harrington 2-1. and one. Europe leads 7.5 to 4.5. Um, Sergio and Luke Donald beat Phil and Tom's two and one in the afternoon. Montgomery and Westwood had with Campbell and Taylor Casey and Hal beat down sink and ZJ five and four and tiger and Furick beat McGinley and Harrington three and two, um, for plank caused a little bit of a stink and only playing one match. Um, he was not very pleased with that tiger and Furick played all four together. They went two and two, uh, as the number one and number three players in the world. Only two matches were won by the U S those were the only two. Uh, or sorry, the only one that was won outside of the Tiger and Fury pairing was Verplank and ZJ against Stenson and Harrington. If you thought we were going to get through this Ryder Cup with no references to Ian Woosdom's height, you have not been here long enough. Uh, <laughs> Sergio settled Saturday. He may be a short man, but he's got a huge heart. Uh, Monty interrupted him and said he is a short man. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just just to be clear, he is quite short. <laughs> <laughs> Ryder Cup officials made NBC's raw feed available in the U.S. team room, which included chatter during commercial breaks. Johnny Miller was going off on Tiger's sloppy game. Uh, and Scott Verplank needed to wake up because ZJ was making all the birdies. Uh, then it magically went away. The raw feed magically went away after it was noted that, Z, uh, that Johnny's off-mic comments were getting uh, beamed into the U.S. team room. So, U.S. trails 10-6 to 6 going into Sunday singles, but fear not. With Listen, we we were down 10-6 to 6 at, at Brookline, guys. We totally got this. Narrator, they don't got this. An all-time beatdown ensued on that Sunday. Things did not go the U.S.'s way. A few fun things. Monty hit a shot into 11 that struck a rock inside of a pond, and instead of going in the water, it went on the green. Steve Williams lost Tiger's nine iron when he slipped while cleaning the blade and accidentally dropped the club into the water on the seventh hole. They had to send a diver in to go get his nine iron and return it to him later. Oh my God. <laughs> I'd never heard that until this. Re I've even done like a deep I dive. I remember something about that, but I, I didn't know that. I figured they just got it out of the pond. I remember they dropped it in there, but I don't think I didn't never heard they had a diver. Go down yes. Who, who was the diver on hand? Who was there with like, <laughs> his equipment? it was like, get to the bottom of this pond and go get Tiger's nine iron. Uh, well, Corey Pavin's such a, a military guy that, uh, you know, he probably had a, a diver on hand for his squad in 2010, which we'll get to. So. <laughs> uh, Paul McGinley conceded a 25-foot putt to J.J. Henry on the 18th hole, or Europe may have broken its own scoring record that it set at the previous Ryder Cup at Oakland Hills. I believe it was done because there was a streaker that ran across the green, and it was the sporting thing to do after a, uh, a male streaker uh, ran across. There were 28 matches this week. The U.S. won. Guess how many matches they won out of 28? Oh my God. Uh, probably how many they won? How many they won? 10? Six. Six. <laughs> Jesus. They, seven were halved, and Europe won the other 15. Uh, between 2004 and 2006, three U.S. players had winning records in individual cups. One in 2004, that was DeMarco, and two in 2006, which was Tiger and Verplank. Tiger went three and two. Phil went 0 4 and 1, got absolutely roasted. If you read some of the articles, it's like, dude, is he like going to play in these events going forward? Can he, is he too tired by the end of the year? This was again at a time when Phil's weight and conditioning, I think was a pretty hot topic of conversation. Yeah. 
And it was basically like, dude, he's too tired after a year of playing and he's, he can't play in this event anymore. Narrator, he would be playing 12 years later in this. Did the media in the 2000s bully Phil, Phil into his current state of uh, fitness? That's because I feel like there's thing. so many references to like, you know, chubby Phil that I feel like that sort of sunk in over the years. And <laughs> Phil was finally just like, you know what? Fuck you all. I'm going to get on a Zempic or I'm going to just work out. I'm going to get on the treadmill every day and you... Uh, you know, he, he basically, I remember I asked him at the masters this year, like, why are you so skinny? He's like, well, I just stopped eating. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I read your article in 2006, Kevin, that called me yeah. fat. Patrick Harrington went all five matches. He went Oh, four and one on a team that won 18 and a half to nine and a half. That's hard wow. to do. That's seriously hard to do. Um, there was a huge celebration on the 16th green for Darren Clark. Tom Lehman hugged him, uh, as he won his match as did the big cat, um, this was also 2006 was the same year that Tiger had lost his dad. So I think there was some, some uh, equal sympathies there shared between the two of them. Layman, of course, said, I don't know in the history of the Ryder Cup, any European team that has played better than you guys. The Detroit Free Press said hey, the Ryder Cup doesn't play towards strength of American pros and it likely never will which I found to be a very definitive statement um, that would ring quite true for the next 12 years as well. <laughs> the good news is that uh, that U.S. Captain Tom Lehman did just about everything right for this year's Ryder Cup. The bad news is it just didn't matter. It never will. And where's here's the reason why you can't change a Tiger's stripes. And the Tiger there is capitalized. As in, again, this was a big time period of just like blaming Tiger for all of the problems on the U.S. team and how his, his Ryder Cup record did not. It didn't, but it, it did not live up to what was expected. A um, few aftermath thoughts. Tiger and Elon won damages against an Irish newspaper that published fake nude photos of Elon during the Ryder Cup. They won 250,000 uh, euros for that, which, um, yeah, that, I'm sure that made a was a. Uh, Sure, that was the, part of the, the the divorce settlement. I don't know. I didn't have a line prepared for that. The, the the Euro press was so shitty during the 2000s. Like just unrepentant, like taking shots at American players' wives, calling them bimbos. You know, this like really obsessed with the idea that they were all just like blonde Stepford wives, and that made them like fair game to just be just. Uh, total open season on them which really fired up the american teams and really changed how they played when they crossed the ocean they really wanted to take it out on the the unfair uh, british press. their wives the integrity of their this is at stake how dare you insult my wife i'm gonna go out and lose four and three <laughs> show you how upset i am uh woods after the event said they have a younger crop of players that are playing well when our youngest player is 30 years old that's not a positive thing they have Luke Donald and Sergio and Paul Casey all in their 20s. We don't have anybody in their 20s on the team. And all three guys I just mentioned have won numerous tournaments around the world. Most of our guys in our 20s haven't won tournaments yet. Former British Open, I, I dug into this. I think former British Open champion Ben Curtis, the 29-year-old, is the only American player currently under the age of 30 at this time that has won a tournament on the PGA Tour. Think about how stark that difference is it's to right now. <laughs> Wow. This idea that golf was a young man's game or was a young man's game really didn't emerge until like 2010. Like this is very much this is the weird time. If not for the Brookline comeback, Europe would have won six Ryder Cups in a row. Uh, Ian Woosman called it the pinnacle of his life. Um, this disaster in the third loss in a row would lead to an overhaul of the U.S. process that lasted exactly one Ryder Cup, of course, the Paul Azinger year. So. <laughs> That is my, it's one of my favorite all-time Ryder Cups, just the pictures of that team and just like trying to like imagine trying to get ready to go to battle, like dressed in all brown like that with Scott Verplank and Stuart Sink and Vaughn Taylor, like, and just going and get your ass whooped 
just so spectacularly 18 and a half, nine and a half. Uh, I, I don't know. It's one of my all time favorites for just a snapshot into. We have a poster in the kill house during, in the bathroom yes. that you look at while you take a piss of the 2006 uh, Ryder Cup team. Any Anyone out there that has 2006 Ryder Cup memorabilia? Please send it to us. Please send it to me. I, I, I want all of it. I want it all over uh, every aspect of my house. It's probably in a suitcase somewhere in Tiger's garage. Yeah, <laughs> or Keegan. That suitcase to or take Keegan. out that brown stuff until he wins a, a Ryder Cup in Europe. A quick break here to check in with our friends at Roback. You know Roback. These guys understand quality. Only way to describe it is best fit, best feel. Summer is in full swing. I've worn, I think, three different Roback polos today. It's still really hot here, so I'm sweating through these. I actually mowed the lawn in a Roback polo today, if you're wondering how dad life was going. Their performance polos, they just hit different. USA-themed designs or classic solids and stripes. They are clean. Four-way stretch and moisture-wicking fabric. They will get you through a warm summer day on the course or mowing the yard. Performance hoodies, that is my go-to in the middle of the night while we're doing diaper changes and feedings. Stretchiest, softest hoodies in golf. If you want to be comfortable and relaxed on the course or off, then wear a rowback hoodie. I'm wearing them probably literally every single day. Lastly, the performance Q-zips are a game-changer. Nothing beats rocking a rowback Q-zip for an early round of golf or an evening out around town. Can't go anywhere without seeing the Subtle Dog logo or the two-stripe ridge on the back of people's shirts. Summer's in full swing. Use code NLU at rowback.com for generous 20% off your first order through the end of this week. That's R-H-O-B-A-C-K.com. 20% off polos, Q-zips, hoodies, and more with code NLU. Summer is calling. Let's make sure to check them out now. Back to the pod. All right, so if you enjoyed uh, getting your ass kicked in brown, you're going to enjoy getting it kicked in lavender uh, <laughs> because that brings us to 2010, the first ever Ryder Cup held in Wales. Yeah, your uh, nay on the lavender. Like, not the uh, worst thing they've done. I know we'll it gets get to that in a second. Okay. There, there's some uh, reviews here, I think. Okay. That are, uh, you know, we'll see. So, Celtic Manor, which they spent about $25 million uh, building. 2010 was the first time ever that the Ryder Cup was held in October. Uh, do you know why this was? Was there a major European sporting event? I don't know. No, I do not know why. The, the, the PGA Tour began to flex its muscle and basically say, we want to hold the FedEx Cup playoffs uh, ahead of the Ryder Cup, and you have to push the Ryder Cup back further and further. We're not going to take a break for it. And so uh, a lot of European uh, media called this uh, sort of a symbol of greed uh, because who in their right mind would hold a Ryder Cup in October in Wales, uh, where it fucking rains all the time <laughs> in October. <clears throat> and essentially, the PJ Tour's cash grab of, of pushing it back caused all kinds of problems for not only for the event, but sort of like some for the history of the event, too, which we'll touch on in a sec. I, I can't I just say like my favorite event by far is the Ryder Cup and like the PJ anything the PJ Tour touches, like they try to ruin. The fact that they tried to ruin my favorite event just is perfect. It's amazing. I wish I knew that. I did not know that until just now. Yeah. So the captains uh, in this era are Corey Pavin and uh, Colin Montgomery. What a bummer that Colin was not a captain in Scotland. I was just uh, thinking since, that. You know, yeah. he is sort of, you know, he's Mr. Scotland. Uh, everything about him is sort of Scottish. Uh, the U.S. vice captains, Paul Goidos, uh, you know, a scene frequently recently, just five putting a green to lose the tournament. Uh, Tom Lehman, Davis Love, and Jeff Sluman would have uh, surprised. You know what I was come up recently, Sally, that sort of surprised me, and I think I answered this in the mailbag, is like, how was like a Justin Leonard never considered for a Ryder Cup captaincy? Or really even like, I, I think he was a like a vice captain at one point, but... 
here's a guy with like an iconic Ryder Cup moment who never won a major, never ever gets mentioned in it. Just sort of surprised me. I think that moment covers up a really spotty Ryder Cup career, in, yeah, including that Ryder Cup, and including like that match. and one or something in that, or 03 it, and one. It was, I mean, he was horrible in that match too, and just like staged this comeback and made that miraculous yeah. putt that covered up. I don't know. It's it's one of those things that like I feel like you people cite Ryder Cup records way too frequently, where it's like, dude, I don't. I don't know. I just did, but I I don't know exactly like how you end up nominated for one of these things and how you don't, but I don't, it's yeah. I, I don't know. I don't have an answer for that. So there was some controversy uh, in 2010 no involving one Tiger Woods uh, who had just come off an enormous scandal. T- 2010 is one of the rare uh, years during Tiger's prime that he did not win a tournament. Uh, finished, uh, if you remember, I think uh, second or third in the Masters uh, that year, and then I think fourth at the U.S. Open. So it's not like he wasn't playing good golf. It's probably his best winless year. Uh, but there was some controversy for some reason about like whether or not Tiger Woods would be named to the Ryder Cup team uh, and whether the, the U.S. was feeling pressure to add Tiger Woods to help boost ticket sales. These are like legitimate things that were pointed out in the media at the time, which seems fucking crazy to me because he was the <laughs> number one player in the world. Like why in the world would you leave Tiger Woods at home? It, it, especially in this era when we don't know, like I get it maybe in two, 2018 uh, or 2021 or whatever, but the idea that like you wouldn't take Tiger Woods, that you were actually going to pass him over if he didn't qualify in points Seemed insane to me, but it was a huge point of contention because Jim Gray, uh, famously of uh, the decision and the Pete Rose, did you bet on baseball uh, thing? He and Corey Pavin got into a spat at the PGA Championship that year because Jim Gray reported that Corey Pavin had told Tiger or had essentially said, I'm going to pick him. Obviously, he's the best player in the world. This really pissed Pavin off that this Jim Gray report. Uh, so from a story on Wednesday morning, Pavin said on Twitter that he was misquoted and then the press conference that Gray's report was incorrect. After Pavin finished taking questions Wednesday afternoon, the PJ championship, he and Gray confronted each other in the whistling Straits media center, standing nose to nose with Pavin. Gray called him a liar and said, you're going down. <laughs> Pavin responded, you're full of it. The conversation took place in front of media members assembled for Pavin's press conference with his and with his counterpart on the European team, Colin Montgomery. At one point in the exchange, Gray started to walk away, prompting Pavin to say, you're just going to walk off? Gray then returned to face Pavin, and the men continued jawing at each other in raised voices. Pavin's wife, Lisa, also joined the fray. <laughs> Pavin said later, let's straighten this out right now. I had a conversation with Jim Gray just outside the locker room near where we were registered, and he asked me a few questions, and his interpretation of what I said is incorrect. There's nobody who's promised any picks. It would be disrespectful of anybody who's trying to make this team. I said, you're full of something, and I'm not going to let that happen. He got upset. His eyes were a little odd. He was just a little crazy. (laughs) Haven's wife was extremely agitated by the exchange and ripped Gray for not broaching the issue with more reporters in the room. She was overheard complaining to a PGA Tour of America official that Gray was a wuss. (laughs) What, What does your going down mean? What does that threat mean? I, I don't know. Is he think, physically threatening him or is he saying you're going to lose the Ryder Cup? I, I have to think that it, it's something to say like, you know, your your reputation's going to be sort of torn apart if you're going to sit here and lie about me like this. I mean, this this was an era where I think, the, as speaking of a big J journalist here, the media probably thought that their power was a little bit larger than it was. Uh, no journalist in that situation in 2023 would think that they could somehow like, 
sully the reputation of the Ryder Cup captain. There's nobody that would choose the side of the journalist. But back in 2006, like there was still enough kind of, you know, leftover gravitas in the media that uh, people were sort of prone to think like, oh, maybe I'll trust Jim Gray on this over Corey Pavin. Either way, like what a stupid controversy that Corey Pavin was like, I will not guarantee Tiger Woods a, a pick. He'll, he'll have to earn his way on the team like anybody else. But and if I can guess as to how this played out, Corey Pavin absolutely said this. Jim Gray probably reported it right. And Pavin freaked out about like, well, I can't like preemptively give one person a pick. We need to build the, you know, whatever. I, I would think that to be the case. And and Gray was probably right in this. Wasn't there something with Lisa Pavin, like with like a recorded phone call or something in this? She claimed that she had recorded the exchange between the two of them, but it never, I, I couldn't find any evidence that like it was, you could listen to it or that it surfaced or that it was like, you know, broadcast on uh, Golf Channel. Some of what's frustrating, I'll say in this research is that Golf Channel has either decided to not uh, like archive a lot of their things. So like there's a lot of broken links uh, that you go back and whether they're just, they don't want to pay the bills for that stuff or whether they're, you know, wiping it out in a Pravda-esque way to sort of, uh, you know, cancel some controversy stuff. But yeah, I'll, you'll find tons and tons of broken links about some of this old stuff that just no longer exists, which is why what makes newspapers.com such a, a resource in this because the web, you know, just kind of, gets poofed and disappeared on some of this stuff. So Lisa Pavin. Uh, oh, can I pause for one yeah. second to say, Tron refers to this as the Lisa Pavin Ryder Cup, which is the best. Well, so I'm just about to get to that. Like, because Lisa Pavin was not sort of a, a blonde buxom in the uh, sort of, I guess, framing of the, the British tabloids, she was sort of embraced uh, early on as like, a, I'm going to read this thing from The Guardian. Uh, she has since become a breath of fresh air to some uh, and a right pain to others. I'm very passionate about everything I do, she says. If I chose to do something, I'm going to do it full force. This Ryder Cup is my passion. This is my husband's dream. When your husband has this dream, you are going to do everything you can to make his dream come true. There's no doubting the sincerity of her support, just as there's no denying her efforts on behalf of her husband have turned into a, her into a bona fide golfing celebrity. She is, for instance, the first Ryder Cup captain's wife to be embroiled in a slanging match with a TV reporter, for, forcefully defending her husband as she was accused Jim Gray of Golf Channel of lying in a he said, she said argument. She, on another occasion, she abraded a Sports Illustrated journalist who she had previously had said slighted her husband in the 90s, long before the couple had even met. There is no time limit to Lisa Pavin's ire. If your husband was in any way being put down, whether it's ambushed at a press conference or being talked about badly, you're going to defend him. It's a natural instinct. I'm not going to have my reputation tarnished or my husband's reputation tarnished. The accompanying headline in this piece is Captainess. Uh, thing, uh, <laughs> <laughs> sort of a term, a nickname that she embraced. And she actually posed nude on the cover of a magazine. Oh, that's uh, right. Uh, and sort of as part of the whole deal, which caused even more sort of uh, controversy. And it, this last quote here, uh, Lisa Pavin says, when I hear people say at Ryder Cups, why are the wives so involved? I think, why wouldn't they be? Golf is a very individual sport. So when you come home, your wife is your best friend, your confidant, your lover, your sports psychologist. A wife plays a very big role in a golfer's life. I think a wife is as big a part of your team as your caddy. So when people say the wives are having more important role, well, that's because we should. We played a very integral role in the life of a golfer, and therefore we're going to play a very integral role in the U.S. team. So I think Sean's right to think that this is the Lisa Pavin uh, Ryder Cup. I love that the uh, the different eras of what the U.S. has tried to do over in Europe. Like 
All right, let's give the wives a turn now. Like we tried the captains. We Listen, tried. We need the wives all rowing in one direction, man. Like we haven't had the the really the wife support we needed in the past. So that's I know we just cheap. did the pods thing and it worked, but it's wives time. Like that's good. That's our ticket to winning in Europe. Uh, uh so uh, there was. We'll get back to Lisa in a second, but um, Tiger, the very controversial captain's pick, had played in twelve events that year. had had two top tens, both in majors, seven top twenty fives, and only one missed cut. Uh, but he had played really poorly at Firestone right before this, so it was sort of seen. Oh, as like somebody a, finished a last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, and Rory had beat him like by like eighteen shots, uh, I believe. Which uh, someone had asked Rory uh, right at Firestone. Uh, you know, would you be excited to to play Tiger Woods? And he said, oh, yeah, definitely. I think something to the effect of like his aura is gone. Uh, it's not quite the sort of top dog. And so at the press conference in uh, Wales, reporter asked Tiger about this uh, and said, you know, what was your reaction when you heard Roy McIlroy say that he's very much like to play against you in this Ryder Cup? And Woods simply said, yeah, me too. And they said, would you care to elaborate? And Tiger said, nope. So people thought that Tiger was going to Stephen Ames, Rory, that this was like basically the beginning of a rivalry. Rory also got into a little bit of uh, controversy. This is his first ever Ryder Cup. The year before at the Irish Open, he had been asked, you know, this you're about to make your first Ryder Cup team. Like, what do you think? And he basically said, uh, and I'm, I'm using Rory's, I, I couldn't find the direct quote, but I'm using a, an interview where Rory talked about it later. Rory said, Basically, what I said was, I don't really care about the Ryder Cup. It's an exhibition. And so is it at the end of the day, you're going to be remembered for what you achieve in an individual sport. When I was a kid, I grew up practicing. I never had a putt to win the Ryder Cup. I, I always had a you? putt to win the Masters of the U.S. Open. Can I pause you? Yeah. He's literally calling me right now. <laughs> just answer him and say, hey, we're just having to be talking about you. We are literally, literally on a pod with KBV rehashing your quotes about the 2010 Ryder Cup. <laughs> it's an exhibition, bud. I was, I was, I was an idiot back then. Don't, don't, take any, don't take any heat of what I said. You should hop on this pod with us, frankly. That's fun. All right, continuing on. You were reading before we got rudely interrupted. <laughs> How dare that man call in in the middle of the thing? Rory, as I said, was uh, was calling it an exhibition. Uh, later, would call himself an idiot uh, and uh, and realize that he had. Um, he had aired badly, uh, as we'll get to his uh, first tee shot in a few minutes. Uh, he, his perspective quickly changed. European team, Westwood, Roy McIlroy, Martin Keimer, Graham McDowell, Ian Poulter, Ross Fisher, Francisco Molinari, Miguel Angel Jimenez, Peter Hansen, and the captain's picks then were Eduardo Molinari, Luke Donald, and Padraig Harrington. The U.S. team is made up of Phil Mickelson, Hunter Mahan, Bubba Watson, Jim Furyk, Steve Stricker, Dustin Johnson, Jeff Overton, Matt Kuchar, Zach Johnson, Tiger Woods, Stuart Sink, and Ricky Fowler were captain's picks. Rory was 21 years old. Uh, Keimer was also playing in his first uh, Ryder Cup period, won the PGA Championship, uh, was 25. Lee Westwood was number three in the world and soon to be number one. Uh, anyways, we said that Tiger and uh, Rory were sort of, uh, you know, I don't know if sniping at each other was the, the right uh, phrase, but... Um, one other interesting sort of controversy uh, leading up to the thing was that Corey Pavin, who had, had uh, as, as you well know, he loves war, right? <laughs> <laughs> he loves the military. He's a warmonger. He's, he just, he's a warmonger. Uh, <laughs> so <laughs> he had caused all kinds of controversy during the war on the shore uh, at Kiowa, that Ryder Cup, by 
you know, being sort of very militaristic, wearing a, a camo hat. Uh, he brought some of that back. He brought like a, a special forces guy into the team room to talk about, uh, you know, how the military sort of works together. And the European media got a hold of this and was basically like, oh, well, you know, do you think you made a huge error in uh, in bringing up the war stuff again? And Payton was like, not at all. Like, I, I think we're super respectful of the military. So every player that came in, every U.S. player that came into the press conference that week got grilled pretty hard about, do you think that you guys are, are going over the top with the war stuff? <laughs> Bubba Watson started crying in his presser <laughs> about this. Uh, it said his father, a Vietnam vet, uh, is dying of cancer and he's dedicating his performance in Wales to his dad. All right. Well, now you make me feel bad for laughing. <laughs> yeah. I, but this quote is funny. More than likely, I'll never go. I'm never going to be in the military. So this is the chance to be like my dad. Oh, my God. Oh, this is why they hate us. I, I, he still I, I has hope time. That, he still has time. If yeah, yeah. Bubba could still. I mean, look, you know, Cat didn't go into the special forces until he was in. <laughs> Almost 40, so there's still time for Bubba. Prince Charles uh, spoke at the uh, opening ceremony, which is sort of strange uh, just thinking about because, you know, the, the royals have basically had no other outside of Prince Andrew have had no interest in golf whatsoever. But uh, Prince Charles gave a very, very classy speech and said, obviously, I'm unbiased about uh, which is but both, good luck to both teams uh, going forward. So the event begins, but immediately so does the rain. Just heavy rain comes like dumping down and basically the matches went out but they didn't get really like more than four or five holes in before the rain was just such a deluge that they had to call them off of the thing they, one of the th reasons they decided to call off is because they had to, they were having to squeegee the greens in between groups and you couldn't see also because of the fog uh like up ahead what was going on and so Padraig Harrington like fired an approach shot into the first green while Stricker and Woods were still standing on the green because it was being <laughs> squeegeed. <laughs> so you can see how the rain and the fog was going to be a problem. Uh, they, it was delayed for seven hours, uh, and they they finally decided to sort of go back onto the um, course. The U.S. staged a minor rally and and actually sort of um, ended up uh, winning that session where it looked like they were down three one when the rain was called, but they didn't really get that far into. The thing. This is, of course, as we've I alluded to in the very opening, uh, the famous rain suit controversy. Oh my God! I want to read to you um, before this. You know, you talked about the lavender shirts. Golf Digest did a review of the um, <laughs> their sort of equipment, basically before, and then said that uh, golf shirts, sweaters, and the accessories were developed by Peter Millar. The men's sport coats and tuxedos and trousers were furnished by Hickey, Hickey Freeman. The rainwear has been provided by Sun Mountain. Players will wear their own shoes in either black or white. Given the locale and the, of the time of the year, the Sun Mountain rain gear is going to be quite prevalent. These outfits in particular will be a departure from the classic all-black waterproofs that we've seen at Ryder Cups past. A lot of thought went into selecting the appropriate typeface that will be used on rain gear and team bags. Think the New York Yankees circa 1936. With a prominent USA logo, the team members' names are embroidered into the back. There will be no confusing the players at Celtic Manor. Every detail has been considered. Even the team logos on the sweaters are placed on felt patches in the spirit of college pennants. And this is this is Marty Hackle from Golf Digest. On a scale of 1 to 10, I rank the effort a 10.5. Nothing is perfect, so that we'll call it a 9.98. 
Uh, this would come back. <laughs> <laughs> no, no one was asking to score the, 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 the attire going into it. And we're talking about one of the great clothing disasters in Ryder Cup history. And it was scored. At t- that's amazing. Credit to Golf Digest for not disappearing this from the internet because it's quite funny to read uh, the the gushing review of uh, all this stuff. So as we soon learned, the rain was there was so such a deluge down that the American team was completely soaked. The rain suits that uh, they had been provided did not keep the rain out. Uh, Tiger was tough. Pissed. Admittedly, yeah. that's tough. It was tough. Tiger was pissed. Apparently he was like, you know, why can't I just wear my own like individual rain gear or Nike rain gear or whatever. And the essentially saying like, no, you're not allowed to do that. We we're we're going to figure this out. Uh, the U S had to go into the, the tent, uh, the sort of merchandise tent and spend 4,000 pounds on rain gear to get new rain gear. Now, sun mountain is close to my heart because <laughs> no this free ads. Sun Mountain is is made in Missoula, or excuse me, is, is a company founded in Missoula, Montana, where I grew up. Sun Mountain has always claimed in it, and it has sort of been proven out over the years that the rain gear was fine until Lisa Pavin decided to embroider every rain suit with the players' names and with. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, that's Lisa Pavin's music! <laughs> So no one bothered to check <laughs> putting a thousand threads into the back of rain suits would somehow make them no longer waterproof. <laughs> so the water seeped right through these rain suits and got all. And of course, the Euros had a delightful time in taunting the U.S. As I think Rory was tweeting like, our, our rain suits are doing just fine. Like we're nice, snug and dry in our rain suits. And Monty was uh, got in a few digs of his own. So. Uh, Ian Poulter said, I can see them right now. Ours are keeping us dry. And that's all I'm going to say. It, just a, a, like one of the great disasters uh, in terms of like uniforms, I think, in sports Ever. history. And, you know, I, my heart, again, goes out to Sun Mountain because I think that, you know, they will always be associated with that, uh, even though it's really more of a, a Lisa Pavin uh, issue. But uh U.S. comes out, so they, they ended up actually leading that session two and a half to one and a half. But because the rain continued to fall uh, so much, for the first time in Ryder Cup history, they changed the format in the middle of the event, which I still kind of can't believe happened. Like, can you imagine if there was an NFL game and, like, it, it dumped rain and snow and in the middle, of, like, at halftime, not even halftime, like at the end of the first quarter – the, they were like, you know what? This is actually going to be a five-quarter game instead of uh, just playing it out like it's supposed to be. Like They were so adamant that they did not want the Ryder Cup to stretch into Monday, which it did anyway, uh, that they were basically like made an agreement of like, all right, so instead of our normal four sessions, we're going to have sessions where we play like everyone is on the course at the same time and we do uh, – four sessions of four balls and two sessions concurrently of alternate shot, which is just bonkers to think about. Like it kind of, imagine putting all of your planning into the Ryder cup, who's going to play with whom, who's going to sit, who's going to not. And then literally one day into the event being like, well, fuck that. Like we got to come up with all new pairings. we got to come up with like, just everybody's going to play and we're going to have to figure it out. Cause uh, your benching strategy is out the window, right? Cause they did, they did. Everyone played foursomes all at once, right? All six played foursomes yes. at once. And then the next day, if I remember right, they went 
force like two more. So basically, they they combined the foursome sessions. They got the four ball session in, the first four ball session in. Did all six played foursomes at once, and then the next window was two foursomes matches and the remaining four ball matches. Yes. Okay. So remarkably, like they figured out a way to get it all in, but sorry, they had an agreement that if the thing stretched into Monday. And if it, they had a time picked out as sundown on Monday, it was like it was 645 or something. Any matches that remained on the course at 645 were declared to have at 643. So like that was it. Like there was a, like a ticking time bomb built into the back of uh, Monday's session. Like if the singles got delayed by rain or whatever, it could have basically just been like, they would have stopped with the euros leading whatever nine and a half to six and a half, which is again, to, to like change the results, not the results, change the, the format in the middle of an event still seems like bonkers to me. I have to think that this, if this happened today, like this wouldn't happen. They would just keep pushing it into this. But, you know, the, the Ryder Cup in the last 15 years or whatever, 13 years has become such an even bigger monster. Uh, I, but I, I don't know. I mean, it's just like they they needed to everybody want, had their plans to leave and they didn't want to stretch it on to the next day maybe they, i don't know maybe there was an outing at the course on uh, tuesday needed to get in couldn't uh, couldn't handle giving up that lucrative uh, it, so <laughs> you're telling there. me that, that hunter mahan's biggest mistake was not the flub chip that we're going to get to it's that he didn't flub 375 more and just get to sundown <laughs> Get the half. Go 14-14. U.S. retains the cup. Oh, my. Look, uh, someone could just concede. Make Hunter Mayhem concede. He's, the U.S. would, he is would perhaps chipping down lose the cup, but he's going to just oh, – he's chipped into the parking lots again. He's refusing to pick up. Uh, the, the time is ticking. This is a, such a disgrace, but also brilliant strategy. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so back to the actual uh, events here. The U.S. – Ends up sort of winning the first uh, session, as I said, two and a half to one and a half. Stricker and Woods actually turned out to be a pretty decent pairing uh, in this. They, they defeated Poulter and Ross Fisher. Bubba Watson with a uh, sort of rare win uh, with Jeff, paired with Jeff Overton. You know, uh, military <laughs> Sergeant Watson uh, getting a, a good victory there over Luke Donald and, and Padraig Harrington. Uh, U.S. came out and again, they won the the next session foursomes. Uh, what's, what's bonkers about this Ryder Cup is... The U.S. ends up winning three out of four sessions and still doesn't win the cup. Uh, so Woods and Stricker again, like just whoop up on Peter Hansen and and uh, Miguel Jimenez four and three. Zach Johnson and Hunter Mahan win their match. Uh, and Stuart Sink and Matt Kuchar defeat Rory and and Graham McDowell. But uh, Phil Mickelson just keeps kind of laying an egg in in these serious matches. Uh, does not get a win in any of the uh, pairings. Uh, it basically, it's only goes into singles winless. Uh, he and DJ get stomped by Harrison Ross Fisher, Harrington Ross Fisher, uh, Luke Donald and Ian Poulter also up. So U.S. Go, gets through that session. They're up 6-4, all right? So they go into the, the second session on uh, Saturday. U.S. is in lavender sweaters, uh, or excuse me, I think lilac is a better uh of it it's still kind of raining that there's the fairways are very squishy uh they're still squeegeeing things the bunkers are still have some like puddling in it it's just it's truly kind of crazy oh, it's so wet oh, doing it's this, so much there's just mud in the stands too if i remember yeah. right yeah yeah completely like just a, a skunk uh, if you may remember um this is the saturday that one of the f- most famous sports photos of all time uh, yes. was taken by mark payne of the daily mail uh, it's the famous, uh, it's Tiger Woods and the famous cigar guy uh, in the back background. His name is 
Rupesh Singadia, I hope I pronounced that right. Tiger, you know, hits a, a sort of a bladed shot uh, out of the awful mud uh, and, and it basically bounces off of the guy's camera. And you can see all of the sort of stands uh, gathered around. But Rupesh is in the background sort of wearing, you know, a costume, which he says is a tribute to Spanish golfer Miguel Hanel Jimenez. I wanted to do something to show my support for the European team. And I thought of Miguel. Uh, these days, sportsmen have become devoid of character, but Miguel does his own thing. And I love the way he walks around the course with a cigar clamped between his teeth. Uh, just a, a very hilarious uh, photo that you still see kind of um, all over. It's Woods iconic. Had, um, Woods was, was apparently quite embarrassed about having uh, bladed into the camera, but uh, did not object to where uh, the cameraman was standing. Didn't think that that was an issue. He was just basically pissed off at himself for hitting the shot. This, this is 2010, so like we're just getting into like Twitter has been born in 2009, uh, and it, it's one of the I don't know if it's one of the first sports photos to go viral, but it certainly like does people like end up photoshopping. Uh, it was Rupesh's huge. It was face. Like, it culturally was like enormous a, photo. Yeah, it's still like if you Google like Tiger Woods cigar guy, you know, hundreds and hundreds of uh, web pages will come up with just cracking jokes on this stuff. So I just pulled the photo up too. like another thing, like one of the last photos you'll see where no one has phones, not everyone has phones pointed at the guy playing. And it's just yeah. the ball out of focus with tiger looking right at it. The cigar guy, everyone just intently watching it. It's amazing. It really is an amazing photo. Lavender sweaters make it, uh, yes. make it sick too. The U S does not do particularly well in foursomes, uh, to start out that day. Uh, Stricker and Woods get stomped uh, by Luke Donald and Lee Westwood six and five, uh, and and Hunter Mayan and Zach Johnson fall to Rory and Graham three and one. This is where uh, you know Europe really starts to sort of take control. They win the next session of four ball three and uh, three and a half to a half, uh, and this is where the Ryder Cup basically kind of like slipped out of the U.S.'s hands. Padraig and Ross Fisher beat DJ and, and Jim Furyk. Peter Hansen and Miguel beat to Bubba and Jeff Overton. The Molinari's uh, beat uh, they have with Sink and Kucher and and Poulter and Martin Keimer beat Mickelson and Ricky. So we go into Sunday signals, Sunday singles, kind of unsure. The U.S. needs a big comeback. It's, you know, they're down nine and a half to six and a half. But, you know, it's doable. We think like there's a the U.S. has always done well in singles. Uh, and we're thinking like, you yeah, maybe Steve Stricker comes out and immediately like, just beats, uh, excuse me, not immediately, but but beats Lee Westwood uh, and gets cuts it to two right away. All of these matches are sort of important in this split as we're going to come down to a very close Ryder Cup. But one in particular uh, that I think you probably remember, uh, a gentleman who was involved in this match just called us a little bit earlier, is Rory McIlroy and Stuart Sink, which is a little bit of a match has been kind of forgotten to yes. history in terms of its importance. Stuart Sink uh, perennially owes muffin baskets to Hunter Mahan for what happens correct. in the back half of this match. Correct. Now, Stuart Sink is sort of, you know, playing a person who will turn out to be uh, one of the great, you know, players of his era, arguably, you know, one of the great players in history and Rory. Uh, but Rory's 21 at this point, and this is a match that I would say Stewart probably should have won, considering the way that he played. There was some opportunities uh, in this that sort of slipped away uh, that were not exactly um, that, that would have been remembered. Like if this was the last match of the thing, it, it's like a we always talk about like it, your fate kind of decides right where you end up being remembered. Everyone thinks about this as like oh Hunter Mayhan like you know, totally fucked up this Ryder cup, whatever. Not really true in a lot of ways. Like 
if if Stuart Sink won this match, or if this match was near the end, Stuart Sink would have been the goat yes. in, a, in a lot of ways. Not, and not, not the greatest of all time. Goat, yes, <laughs> he had a chance to put Rory two down through eleven. Rory made this crazy good birdie from fifteen feet after having totally hit it wild off the tee and had to lay up on a par five. Sink drove the green into, uh, made a you know a, a fairly easy two putt birdie, but Rory rolled in like a curling fifteen footer, kept it one down. Rory then dunks it in the water on 13 makes double, uh, goes back one down. There's a really tight match all throughout. They come to the 15th. It's a, it's a 253 yard par four, which I mean, uh, Hey, if they're, if Marco Simone's going to be filled with these kind of holes, then ours are relevant. <laughs> yeah. Totally uh, sink hits it. I'm not kidding to maybe about eight feet. Uh, just a really like good, like hybrid, uh, maybe is like a five for seven wood something in there. Rory hit it in the bunker, all Stuart Sink's got to do essentially is, you know, win this hole. It's probably like, you know, he's probably going to, it's going to be really hard for, for Rory to come back. Stuart Sink, three putts. Like uh, inexplicably misses, three putts. Yeah. It misses a really like, you know, uh, I, I would not say easy putt, but like a four footer maybe um, that essentially lets Rory off the hook. And so they, they go into 16. It looks like Stuart Sink's going to win again. It's like, and Rory makes a, like a curling 10 footer, just an unbelievable, like, you know, stones in your, in your throat kind of putt. Uh, Rory did some hero shit in this match. So I'll, uh, you have to sort of give Rory credit for that, but they come to 17. All right. And Stuart sink, Rory hits it probably to 30, 40 feet. 17 was a, a long par three, like a 200 yard par three sink hits a shot that looks like it's going in the bunker. The announcer's, while it's in the air are like, Oh no, he's in trouble. It hits the, like the side of the bunker and kicks left and rolls out to four feet. It's, it's what an unbelievable break. Like one of the great breaks of all time. If he makes this putt, he's going into 18 one up, you know, all he's got to do is essentially, you know, make a par or make a birdie. Uh, and he's, he, you know, he's going to force Rory to make a birdie or an Eagle on the last is it. He, he hits a putt that doesn't even like touch the hole. Like I, it, it, I can't describe the putt is definitely shorter than Stuart Sink is tall. So it, it had to be like less than five feet, but it was incredibly close. Is it shorter? Just, is it closer than Ian Woosdom is tall? <laughs> now that's, that's uh, up in the air. I, I, I can't sort of say one way or another. Uh, so then on 18, uh, actually, you know, Stuart Sink has another chance to, he has got a birdie putt. Rory tries to go for the green in two ends up in the bunker and leaves it in the bunker with his second shot can only make par. So sink has a putt to essentially, you know, I don't know if it would have won the Ryder cup, but it would have made Hunter Mahan's match, like much less all the pressure was on him. He, he doesn't make the putt. Rory gets up and down for a five. It's a have, uh, it's just a, it's a huge break for the euros. Um, which again, it, the final score ends up being 14 and a half, 13 and a half. And mm -hmm. if Mahan can muster up a, a have in that final match, the U S retains the cup. Uh, someone who does muster up a have uh, is Ricky Fowler. This is really, if you look back at Ricky Fowler's Ryder Cup career, this is the the brightest moment of all. One of the few moments where it's like, okay, you are, are, are really like a budding sort of future superstar. He had two fucking do or die putts on 17 and 18, where if he didn't make them, the U it, he loses the match and the U.S. essentially loses the Ryder Cup. And it's very clear at this point because he's off fourth to last. And so his, his match is extremely important. He 
makes a birdie on he 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 probably made a birdie on 15 but it, they never putted it out because uh edward Ardemonari sort of effed it up going to the green so he you know they conceded like a six footer when uh molinari had like a you know, missed a bogey putt so essentially ricky birdies you know 16 17 and 18 to win the, the putt on 18 is incredible i i have a memory of this it was a monday morning i was at work and we kept going me and my coworkers, like kept going from our desk into the break room to watch it and we watched that like 20 of us in a room watch that putt pour in and just erupt out of a conference room a truly just a cool moment like he you know especially i mean his putt and putt on 17 too like it was probably 15 20 feet uh molinari had had lagged it up to an inch so if if ricky doesn't make it like it's over there's no basically like the rest of it is not going to matter drains it you know goes again and then drains it again on 18 like just an an awesome performance is if there's a if, if you have hope that, for ricky like returning to any form right this like, is this like, is right because it, 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 this was, I think, the 13th, like whatever it would have, if I remember right, the, there were some either, um, Phil had just lost his match, right? Or how many matches? There weren't won, any- so it was at this point, it made it 13 and a half to 12 and a half when Ricky won. Right. And if match. it's 14 and uh, the whatever else was out there goes to, wrong, it was like, if he missed that putt, the cup was lost already. Correct. It felt like. Yes. Okay. Yes. I mean, almost certainly the cup was lost. Yeah. Like it. Still, like, was I mean, at that point, like, Mahan would have had to win three of the last, you know, four holes or whatever. But, um, so you know, uh, just to sort of review quick what happened, like, um, Dustin Johnson finally woke up, just absolutely baptized Marvin Keimer six and four. Poulter kind of adds to his kind of Ryder Cup legend, beats Matt Kuchar four and five and four. Jeff Overton, thumping Ross Fisher three and two. Miguel Angel Jimenez, uh, unfortunately, um, honorably discharging Bubba Watson four and three. Uh, Tiger finishes up a three and one Ryder Cup session by beating uh, Francesco Molinari three and four and three. And Phil finally gets in on the action by beating uh, Peter Hansen four and two. It's Phil's only um, positive sort of result of the Ryder Cup uh, went one and three in, in this Ryder Cup. So it all comes down to the match uh, of Hunter Mahan. Excuse me. Uh, one note though, Jim Furyk probably could have he, he was Furyk's second match off or third match off so he loses eventually one up to luke donald but if you're looking for like spreading the blame around a little bit like Furyk could have won this match against luke donald like he or he could have had a have he came to luke donald played pretty darn well but Furyk came to 18 had a wedge from 120 yards uh and dumped it in the bunker didn't even give himself a chance at a birdie. Donald made like a sloppy five. You know, if if Furyk birdies eighteen, that's a have, and then that that helps you know flip things down the road. So it didn't seem super important in the moment, as often these things do with Ryder Cups. But uh, if, you, if you're looking to sort of you know say it wasn't all on Hunter Mahan, uh, there's another sort of result. I'd say it's a little bit. Um, Hunter Mahan didn't make a birdie until the fifteenth hole. Uh, so. It wasn't like Graham played lights out that day. Hunter had a, a short putt on the 11th uh, that he could have made and missed. Um, but what does happen is McDowell makes an unbelievably awesome uh, birdie on 16. Like a, it was a long par four, it was like 460 yards. McDowell hit, just ripped a drive right down the middle of the fairway, like 315 yards, which, which for him in that era was a long, long drive. Hits it to 20 feet and then just trickles in this unbelievably deft uh you know 15 20 footer 
to go two up with two to play. Iconic so, moment. That crowd yeah. on that hill on that Monday. Like they, everyone knew the Ryder Cup was coming down to that match. That was one of the most clutch putts in Ryder Cup yep. history. So Hunter needs to win both 17 and 18. So at this point, it's, it's all you task. know, he has to come back and win both these holes. It's the idea that like somehow Hunter Mahan like choked away the Ryder Cup is a little unfair because at this point, like Graham has, you know, has basically taken it from him uh to this point but the damage is done before he got to that point with me correct really hunter hits it uh, hits his graham hits his he's off he's off first on 17 he hits it to probably 25 30 feet beyond the pin and hunter comes up short uh with his uh putt uh, sorry with his long iron and has a chip uh that he has to get close right or he probably thinking like I might have to make this because, you know, McDowell's got a, a really good chance at two-putting this. So I, as someone who has had some chipping problems uh, and, and may still be having them, I got to tell you, this is the kind of uh, chip that gives people like me nightmares. Uh, uphill, against the grain, you have to nip it like super perfectly. If you're trying to use the bounce, you bring in like, you know, blading it, you know, 50 feet past he hits it, you know, and it doesn't really even reach the surface. So it, it, it goes probably, you know, six feet, uh, and, and just is still on the fringe. And he's obviously devastated. The whole crowd is like, Oh, you know, the task was outrageous, enormous and unlikely, but the shot is like the worst you'll ever see a professional hit. Like that's, that's the part that people struggle to marry up. Like, I don't think they realize like he needed to hold that probably, but it was a truly horrific shot. So, a little like people always say that oh Graham McDowell like made the winning putt at the Ryder Cup. He didn't actually. Uh he he hit it to like six feet. Uh where he so he still like had a chance to like if if Hunter makes the next one, Graham would have had to make this five six footer to essentially win the Ryder Cup. Hunter gives it a really pretty good effort, uh, and it sort of just trickles by the hole, and then he walks over and concedes because, you know, it, it doesn't matter at this point. So the idea, like, I've, I saw several references to, like, Graham McDowell made the winning rider putt. No, nah, I mean, he, maybe I guess he made the winning putt on uh, 16, if that's the case, but uh, he didn't make it on 17. It just had the, his ball picked up. As you can imagine, as as anyone would be, Hunter Mahan is just pretty devastated you know, he gets asked questions in the press conference and is so kind of overwhelmed with emotion that he can barely speak like through tears. Uh, and it, it's impossible to not watch that uh, and not feel for Hunter Mahan and, and feel sympathy for him. And, you know, Phil Mickelson, to his credit, like grabs the mic and was like, you know, any one of us would have wanted to be in that position. He put himself in that position today. Uh, Stuart Sink also sort of steps in. Um, so it's kind of a cool moment in terms of like camaraderie of, of those guys basically kind of boost him up. Uh, you know, sync says, you know, he's a man in our team. Uh, he performed like a champ out there today. I think he's awesome. Uh, it really kind of, you know, it, the closest the U S has come to winning in Europe, uh, all this time, 14 and a half to 13 and a half, as I said, like, you know, the rain gear probably didn't make any real difference. Uh, just like, um, all kinds of things, but you just, you know, you never know uh, what what one thing could have flipped uh, a match. And the, the last uh, thing I have of this is uh, Ian, uh, Ian Poulter caused a big, big kerfuffle afterwards uh, because this is, again, the sort of the social media era coming to life. 
he uh, posted a video of himself drinking or uh, eating Cheerios out of the Ryder Cup <laughs> with his children. And even uh, the even the European media was incensed about this, calling it extremely disrespectful that uh, he would. Oh my god! His, his I'd love serial, to get mad about his serial controversy. Yeah, listen, I'd love to get mad about Poulter. That's totally fine. You win the cup, totally. you do whatever you want with it. My God. So that is 2010. That's a good one, man. That's a you know, I, I look back at that one fondly just because it was close. Like the other European ones have been such blowouts that it's hard to look at fondly. So. All right, we go to Glen Eagles, which was one that, uh, you know, we kind of tend to fight over these a little bit where we could kind of be like, we do a little bartering when we do these recaps of like, all right, well, you got the highlight of 96. I'll take the highlight of 97. I wanted 14, man. I wanted to relive 14. Uh, we are going to Glen Eagles in Scotland. The captains are Tom Watson and Paul McGinley. Tom Watson is the oldest U.S. captain ever at 65 years old. The ass captains are Andy North, Raymond Floyd, and Steve Stricker. You know, if you were worried about these, you know, maybe Tom Watson not being in touch with the players, you know, of course, you got to throw in Andy North, Raymond Floyd. Uh, Stricker being the, the lone exception here, and he's going to play a part here. Uh, it's just kind of wild that my old colleague Andy North is like an assistant captain in this Ryder Cup. I mean, so obviously he's friends with Watson, so that's part of it. But like Andy North hadn't been involved in like a lot of golf. Andy North, like notorious for only winning two US, two US Opens and no other tournaments in his entire like career. Not exactly like finger on the pulse of the uh the young Ryder cup uh kids the quote about watson of uh often wrong but never in doubt is going to permeate so strongly <laughs> from the jump with his ass captains uh and this was of course the ted bishop bishop special i want to shout out shane ryan he's got a great podcast called the Ryder cup run he did a great episode on this of just the the you know I'm not going to dive into all of the what went into Watson becoming captain but the idea being hey we haven't won across the pond in forever it's been what is it 21 years to this point Tom Watson was the last captain of the U.S. team that went over and won in 1993 they needed a strong force across the pond um again Ted Bishop kind of following his gut of course Ted Bishop would later be fired for tweeting at Ian Poulter and calling him a little girl <laughs> so yeah maybe maybe not the guy to be calling the shots here Nick Faldo called out Sergio during live coverage saying he was useless on the 2008 team and Bishop was with Faldo on a Thursday at the Greenbrier for the Faldo Series Junior Program when he tweeted to Poulter, Faldo's record stands by itself. Six majors and all-time Ryder Cup points. Yours versus his? Little girl. Uh, so I had a feeling some alcohol might have been involved in that one. So Shane Ryan would go on to say in this podcast that this was the Ryder Cup that broke the Americans. And I do not disagree with that assessment. Going to the Euro side first, Paul McGinley is the captain. And again, this is a whole saga on its own. I'm going to cover it as briefly as possible. But um, Darren Clark and uh, Paul McGinley are great friends. Um, but when Tom Watson is named the captain on the U.S. side, uh, this is, I think, from the Guardian, says Clark in a letter had informed McGinley that he wasn't interested in the job for 14, which helped clear the way for McGinley captainship. But shortly after the 2012 Ryder Cup at Medina, Clark pulled an about face, tossing his hat back in the ring to captain the 14 team. In Clark's corner was Ryder Cup stalwart Lee Westwood, who went to bat for the burly Northern Irish Irishman at a tournament press conference in Turkey. In late 2012, Clark changed his mind again, proclaiming he'd rather play on the 14 team than captain it. He also said that whoever is standing on stage opposite Tom Watson needs a huge presence. We seriously need the right man for the job. So you meant McGinley, right? Nope. 
Clark was backing Colin Montgomery to come back in and captain um, another home Ryder Cup just four years after captaining the one in Wales. So again, this is a whole long saga back and forth, but uh, Rory McIlroy puts a kind of a dagger in things when he tweeted, Ryder Cup captaincy should be a one-time thing. Everyone deserving gets their chance and moves on. I would love to play under Paul McGinley in 2014. Just give people an idea of how close McGinley and, and Clark were. Paul McGinley withdrew from the 2006 PGA Championship to attend Clark's wife's funeral uh, when she died there in 2006. So, again, it's a whole saga back and forth. And, you know, Lee Westwood backs Colin Montgomery. Luke Donald backs Paul McGinley, which leads to an interesting situation when Paul McGinley goes to fill out his team. Uh, and he ends up selecting... Stephen Gallagher, a, a Scotsman who had had a great year, the lone Scottish player on the team, Ian Poulter, uh, who's kind of an automatic pick at this point after what happened to Medina, and then had the decision between Lee Westwood, who backed Montgomery, and Luke Donald, who backed McGinley. Do you remember mm -hmm. who he took? He took uh, Westwood, right? Because he took the guy who who didn't back him. It was like he put yeah put uh, the the integrity of the Ryder Cup above any personal feelings. That's exactly right. I, I love it just real quick. Like there, this doesn't happen in America, but like there's always like a tug of war between captains in Europe. And it's like the, every in, in, interview is like asking, who are you backing? Like who, you know, who, who's who are you supporting this year? And, and they almost like the committee on the Euro tour weighs that of like, all right, well, he's got, he's got Lee's support, but he, this guy's got Rory's support. And it, like in America is just like, nope, Zach's the pick or Stricker's the pick. There's never like a, public discussion about like i don't want that guy yeah we just publicly backstab each other right i mean <laughs> we do it after the fact uh, even though like there's still i mean can you think of an other than watson an american captain who when he got the job people were pissed about it i i don't remember like a lot of like there wasn't up people upset when furek got the gig or i mean there was some i feel like when layman and Paven, maybe there was some controversy, but never, not never quite as big as what happens in Europe, where there's like people, like literally, as you said in the last one, calling Ian Wisdom like a, a pathetic, you know, piece of shit person, <laughs> whatever. So um, back to the US, we have uh, Bubba Watson leading the team in points, uh, Ricky, Furick, Jimmy Walker, Phil, Kucher, Spieth, Reed, and ZJ. Uh, Tom Watson, one of his first moves was to reduce the amount of captain's picks from four to three. Uh, which puts ZJ on the team uh, after Dustin Johnson uh, took a, a voluntary leave of absence for golf. And uh, I don't have any further details as to why he decided oh. that. But um, I hope it wasn't a jet ski injury. I, I, I don't know what it was. But <laughs> yeah. Zach Johnson now makes the team uh, on points. In the nine slot, he would go on to go 0-2-1. Tom Watson selects Keegan Bradley, Hunter Mahan. And with the final pick, he does not have the opportunity to select Billy Horschel, who had just finished second, first, and first in the final events of the 2014 season because the picks were made on September 2nd. Uh, he changes his mind on the day of the picks, I believe, on the day the of the night. picks. The night. The night. <laughs> it is believed that Bill Haas had already been communicated to that he would be on the team. Webb Simpson would say, I thought I've got nothing to lose, so I texted him something like, I know it's a really tough decision for you. I know Chris just won, and I, I know Bill Haas is playing really good. And you even have other options other than that. But I really, really, really want to be on the team. And I really, really want to represent the United States. I love this format. And I'll do anything to be on the team. 
Um, he said it was like 4.30 in the morning. It's a tough question to be asked. I just told him about my passion for the Ryder Cup from my one experience and how I cared about it and how much I believed I thought I could bring to the team. Nothing over the other guys, but just, hey, you know, Medina is still there. I think about it, and I want another shot. I didn't have a lot of interaction with Captain in terms of texting and phone calls throughout the year. He would text me occasionally that I'm on his radar, but it was kind of the first time I expressed to him how bad I wanted to be on the team. And by the end of the phone call, Watson congratulated Tom Watson. He told me he would be named as a captain's pick later that day. Which even like reading back at that, all I'm hearing from Webb is that he wants to be on the team. Like yeah. a lot of no, people want to be on the I team. Don't blame Webb at all. Like he I, No, I'm saying like I don't know what he said to convince him. Like other than like I just no, want yeah. to be on the team. I really want to be on the team. Like I want I'm sure you do. Like I everyone <laughs> wants to play on the team. I'm not like hearing yeah, no, like page. who am I gonna pair you with? Why are you a good fit for Glenn <laughs> Eagles? Like what, you know. Uh, yeah, I feel I, like uh, Bill Haas and uh, Cam Young should get together and do a pod. <laughs> <laughs> what it's like to almost be on the Ryder Cup team. If you'll remember, there was some big controversy leading up into this. Oliver Brown from the Telegraph has a take on a U.S. player. There is no other stage in the game that would permit Ricky Fowler to disembark the Americans Ryder Cup plane in Edinburgh, sporting a G.I. Joe style crew cut. The letters oh. USA shaved around his ear in an exhibition of thuggish jingoism that on any normal day would give grounds for many a club secretary to throw him off the premises in a heartbeat. Wow. The club secretary invoking the club secretary. How dare you? I'm going to finish my dinner of ham and peas and come right out and slap you on the wrist, young man. Thuggish <laughs> jingoism. Uh, Ted Bishop it's also it. shaved USA in the size of his head, but I don't know if he had enough hair to be able to see it. There's a picture, and I had to read the caption to, be, to it for it to be, have said that he had uh, shaved USA in the side of his head because I couldn't really. Shout out to the Euromedia, who will, I'm sure like it usually plays the same tricks over and over and over again. We'll find something in the lead up to Italy to get upset about yes. it'll probably be brookline uh, again like, <laughs> somehow always the americans still have not apologized for brookline uh i don't really remember this but there was some dubbing of this u.s team as the redeem team uh oh. which yeah that didn't really work out um a more uh, uh i forget where I read this uh, a more accurate expression of u.s plans here could be found in the unguarded remark of past captain paul azinger who channeling both braveheart and pulp fiction uh, said of roy mcelroy I want us to go all William Wallace on his ass. Um, I don't wow. remember that from, from invoking the Irish Scottish uh, stuff. Yeah, that's that's, that's uh, I don't know about that, Paul. Oliver Brown <laughs> continued: These next six days should form a fascinating, fascinating litmus test of Watson's credentials as the great moral educator of golf. As we wait to see whether he will curb any over exuberance among his men. Uh, let me point out this Ryder Cup ends with Rory McIlroy prematurely popping a bottle of champagne uh, near the 18th green. <laughs> uh, so I'm sure Oliver Brown took Rory to task for it. It was an accident. but uh, Look, I'm sure there are, there are people in England who are listening to this, Scotland, Ireland, whatever, Europe, that are annoyed. But like, I think what you and I constantly just like to, to joke about is the weird double standard that the English press has for behavior issues that like nobody ever flips out about like John Rom like pounding his chest and like, you know, going all Hulk after beating Tiger in Paris. Nobody cares about Jose Maria del Bethabo and like Seve, like doing the conga on, you know, the green at Muirfield. Like it's, it's always the Americans are just such thuggish, you know, thuggish, <laughs> thuggish jingoists with that in their fan. I mean, look, look, the Ryder Cup in Beth Page is going to be so bad. It is going to be a fucking nightmare in terms of the crowd stuff. It's going to be awful. So, 
don't empty all your takes, England, <laughs> before we get to Beth Page, because I, I cannot tell you, having covered the, the last PGA that Brooks won at Beth Page, the fans there are going to be unruly and awful and it's going to be nothing like minnesota they should not the Ryder cup that's that's going to be a take and i don't even like necessarily disagree with it but it's also like man i as much as like i hate polter's antics during the Ryder cup that is a hundred million percent part of it like that it's a sports hate it's like dude i just want to beat that dude and like it is all above board in the Ryder cup uh people that were mad at jt and burger for chugging beers on the first tee it was like Dude, I, what are we doing here? This event is entertaining. And I, I think a good rule of thumb that we've always followed is when the Americans lose, blame the Americans. And when the Americans win, blame the Americans. Like, that's Americans. the European rule. Like, it's, it's, no matter what. It's like this every time. Uh, so getting into uh, the European side, it's Rory, Henrik Stenson. Really good team. Henrik Stenson, Victor Dubuisson, uh, Jamie Donaldson, Sergio Garcia, Justin Rose, Martin Keimer, Thomas Bjorn. Graham McDowell and the aforementioned picks of Gallagher, Poulter, and Westwood. So uh, pre-match, we have uh, Phil dropping in the whitest comment of all time, uh, trash-talking comment of all time, saying we also don't litigate against each other. Of course, referring to that Rory and GMAC were tied up in a lawsuit. Rory filed the lawsuit the day before GMAC's wedding and didn't attend the wedding. Rory later settled it for, I believe, nearly $30 million. I don't really know enough about that whole thing. That'd be a good deep dive someday. But Well, Phil knows a lot about owing people $30, $40 million, so... <laughs> I'm sure in, in retrospect. Uh, on that note, Rory would reply, find Phil later and say, at least I'm not wanted by the FBI. Whoa! Admittedly, they, they, is a lot better dig than what, what Phil laid down. Listen, th- these two have been like sniping at each other over Ryder Cup stuff for years. I'll, I'll still remember in Hazeltine, like they were in a match. It was like the first day and they were playing alternate shot and Phil was partnered with Ricky. And Phil walked all the way across the fairway to see what the lie was like on Rory's uh, like tee shot. And Rory was like, we're fine here, Phil. Yeah. Like, get back over on your side of the fairway. Oh, I was I like, remember that. That was sweet. It's particularly when it comes to the Ryder Cup, these are two dudes who do not like each other. So, like, I people were kind of – I put this in the mailbag last week about, did you think it was, like, really low class of Rory to take a shot at Phil's, you know, gambling stuff or whatever? He wouldn't have done that if it was, like, a – gambling is, you know, you know, is a disease – I was like, he didn't take a shot at his gambling. He took a shot that Phil's not involved in the Ryder Cup, which I'm sure that Phil is bummed about. He said, well, he doesn't have to worry about that because he's not going to be there this year. So, that, I mean, I think that's all is fair game when the, between these two over the years. Like, you start firing out, like, well, we're sort of not litigating against each other. Like, it's all it's all fair game, man. That that last one from Rory was one that I was like, I don't know if that was necessary, man. Like, I, it, <laughs> it was trying to, I don't know. That one, I'm, I don't know, as much as I'm not, I am team Rory over team Phil. Like I, I, I might've just left that one alone if I was him. But anyways, do you want to do, uh, so I'm going to play this now. There is a, a clip of a story. It's lengthy. I've used it in a Ryder cup medley. I've is comes from the Paul McGinley episode of the Ryder cup from September of 2020 that I would point people towards oftentimes. And I'm going to play it again here because this clip alone transformed so much of my thinking of how the Ryder Cup is done, how teams are, how a captain can make a difference in a Ryder Cup, how a plan can come. And I, I want to play it now because we're going to get into what Tom Watson does. And I want people to have the full stark difference and understanding of the difference in these two captains and how it played an enormous factor in this. So this is Paul McGinley, No Laying Up Podcast from September 2020, uh, talking about how he did w- one of his pairings and one of uh, his plans. 
So um, my philosophy as a captain was very much um, along the lines of Sam Torrance. It was about communication. It was about relationships. It was about managing all the relationships. I mean, I didn't have 12 guys that I knew really, really well. I knew a lot of them well, um, and some were easy to manage, um, and some were more difficult. You know, Victor Dubasson had made the team who, you know, all the French guys in tour were telling me he was kicked off the French team when he was an amateur, kicked out, kicked out of the federation. He wore the wrong clothes. He wouldn't be told what to do. He won't turn up for team meetings and all of those. And, you know, that was highlighted as a red flag to me. So I made it really made it my business. I put a lot of effort into managing him. And, and I did that by getting to know him as a person. I remember going out to Malaysia for a week where he was playing and spending a week with him, having dinner with him at night and trying to break down his barrier that he had as a human and, and tried to get me into it. He's very untrustworthy of people and, and, you know, try to get him in there. I took him down to Monaco. We had a bottle of wine on a, on a, on a friend of mine. He was a formula one team. I knew he loved formula one, got him into that environment, got him in a nice kind of, and, you know, kind of managed him and slowly brought him into the team and then got, got Graham McDowell to play a part as a senior guy. He needed a senior guy. Then I had to talk, and cajole Graham into playing that role. Uh, Graham wanted to play a bigger role. He wanted to be one of the stars of the team and play in all five games. And I said, no, Graham, I mean, this is the plan. At that stage, I was formulating a plan of who was going to play what, just like Sam did to me in the back of that BMW on the way down with a bottle of champagne. He had a plan and I was going to have a plan. And, and you know, I was starting to formulate the plan pre that Ryder Cup um, of who was going to play with who. And, and, and then it was a question of when the Ryder Cup came, I was going to roll out that plan. It wasn't making it up as I went. It wasn't making it up two days before. This was going to be made up well in advance based on statistics, based on, on, on the golf course. And, um, and and that was going to be the plan. And, and then that, that the, the, um, the communication of that plan to each individual player and not telling them, like Sam did, what everybody else is doing. So, for example, you know, Rory wasn't aware of, of who else was doing what in the team except who he would be playing with and whose potential partners were and how many matches you would play. That's all he needed to know. Whereas, and Victor the same, you know, you're going to be playing two matches, you're going to be playing with Graham in the foursomes the first two days and then you're going to play the singles, you're going to be playing three matches. You know, and then with Graham, um, I had a little bit of the yin and the yang. So trying to get Graham convinced to play this role of only playing three out of five matches was a naughty thing. You know, Graham, like all players, has got an ego and he wanted to play five and he's, you know, coming off, you know, not long after being the US Open champion and a big star and, and, and you know, and, and had been an absolute hero in 2010 and really wanted to play that that big role, that lead role. And um, I had a little bit of a, a smaller role for him to play, but a very important one in terms of looking after one of the rookies playing those two matches in a difficult format that is foursomes. Um, and I had to try and convince him that this was the right thing to do. So I did it uh, in by talking to him on a humane level and also on a common sense level. Uh, and, I, and I set him down based on what I knew with statistics and what I trawled out. Um, and I said, look, the real key to unlocking this golf course based on, on the stats that I've gathered over the last 10 years of the Johnny Walker around Glen Eagles golf course, Graham, is the fact that the real key is unlocking the par fives. There's four par fives in this golf course as well as a drivable par four. Now, they're all big par fives. And uh, what I really want to do is I want to have the, the bigger hitter driving on these holes. Four out of those five holes are even numbers, Graham. I really need, you're not one of the bigger hitters. I need to put you with a big hitter and I need to, you to, to look after a guy who's, who's, who needs somebody senior and mature on the team and there's nobody better than you to play that role. And then I took out the yardage map and I showed him, you know, your average drive down to second, Graham, is, is, you know, he can't get home in two. Whereas if he drives, you're able to get home in two. And then slowly went around the golf course that way. When it comes to 14, he can drive the, gray, the, the green, Graham, because it's an even number. It'll be his driving hole. Whereas, you know, if you're driving on that hole, you're going to have to lay it up. And, 
Uh, so my, my forces partnerships were yin and yang. I had a big hitter and a shorter hitter uh, in each partnership in order to attack the par fives with the bigger hitter driving on the um, on the even numbers. So then if he, if he played all that role for him, I then gave him the cherry of, I'd say, look, Graham, if you do this for me, I'll put you out number one in the singles uh, in, in two weeks' time. I'll, I'll put you out leading out the team in singles. You know, now I'm playing to his ego. I'm playing to you know, a role that he really wanted to play. And he's like, really? What will Rory say about that? And, and I said, I've cleared it with Rory. Rory's good with, with all of this. We're going to put Rory out number three because putting out number one is a lot of expectation on his shoulders. I know the last two European captains have put him out at number one, but that hasn't worked out too well. He's lost both of his games. You know, I personally wouldn't be putting out the best player at number one because they've got nowhere to go at number one. They're expected to win. There's a huge amount of expectation on their shoulders. And that was my, my, my I said to Graham, I said, my gut instinct is, the best number ones are the street fighters, the guys with the biggest heart. That's the guy you put out number one, Graham, and you're the guy with the biggest heart in this team. So, you know, it, it was all about managing that kind of, just an example of the communication and, uh, that I had with Graham. And so he went away, then he played his two games with, uh, with with Victor. They won both of their games and Graham was terrific. And then he went out number one in the singles and, and one in the singles. And, and you know, the other, the other point I made to him about playing the singles, Graham, is look, Graham, if you play this role in the first two days of only playing one match, you're going to have an advantage in the singles. And the advantage will be America are going to do one of two things. They've historically always done one of two things. They'll either put out their best player, number one, or they'll put out the player who's playing the best that week. Either way, Graham, they'll have played 72 holes in the first two days. You only have played 36. You're going to be fresher going out against whoever you're playing against. doesn't matter who it is. And that's ultimately what happened. You know, he, he went out against Jordan Spieth, who was their best player. And uh, and Jordan tired. I mean, Jordan got three up at one stage early on Graham, but but faded then as, as Graham went on to win two and one. So all those conversations were had two weeks in advance of the Ryder Cup. Graham knew well in advance of the Ryder Cup exactly what role he would play, and that's ultimately what happened. Incredible story. It, it, it again, I cannot stress how how drastic the difference is from what's about to unfold on the U.S. side, right? And I, I don't know how you hear that story as one example of a leader and how you come up with a plan for the Ryder Cup and not think that chemistry and captaincy and pairings and team chemistry matters, right? Like that's where I think I, I go back to like having trouble with this just label as a boys club of being like, no, like some of these decisions really will matter. And how the U.S. ended up with their pairings, the one that ended up working the best was also kind of an accident. And we'll get to that here in a second. So um, Tom Watson wanted to pair Jordan Spieth with Matt Kuchar and Patrick Reed with Jim Furyk. Um, so <laughs> Steve Stricker convinced him to put Reed and Speed together. So the only U.S. pairing that really worked uh, ended up being a, uh, a total accident. The U.S. has their best ever outfits on. You commented yesterday on Twitter on it. The sweaters are fire. The beanies are great. Pinstripe, uh, white pinstripes on blue pants on bottom. Just that simple Ryder Cup trophy on the front of them. And I mean, the, the Reed and, and Spieth went on to have just a truly all-time morning. Like, it was incredible. They are balling out. Their combined age is 45 years old, which is the youngest in U.S. history. They hand Ian Poulter his, his first loss in his last eight Ryder Cups. It's electric. Spieth makes a 15-footer to put them five up through 10. He didn't even watch it go in. It's a foot away, and the crowd mm -hmm. is still, like, you know, hasn't reacted to the putt yet. And you just hear him yell, Come on! As the putt drops and like he and Reed are pumping each other up. It was awesome. It was like, all right, we've been looking for this pairing on the U S side for quite some time. Um, they get to the, uh, another pairing gets to the first tee. I believe this was the first group. If I remember right, introducing in four balls, the first player to play now on the tee, Bubba Watson. Uh, the only problem was it was Webb Simpson that was up at that point, And he would go on to sky his opening tee shot. I don't think it went barely 200 yards, barely reached the fairway. 
feel you, Webb. As someone who skies T-shots occasionally, I feel you. <laughs> Again, this is Tom Watson's ego at play here. His captain's pick, his final gut captain's pick, has to be the one that hits the first shot um, in this four-ball match. They would go on to play. They're playing Justin Rose and Henrik Stenson would go on to lose that match five and four, um, and Webb Simpson would not play any of the remaining three sessions. Um, so whatever oh, wow. plan, whatever oh, God, web got benched entirely after one, whatever plan Tom Watson had for this captain's pick, uh, it's going to be a little different than, uh, how the, you know, Paul McGinley's plan for Victor Dubuisson that included a trip to Malaysia, a trip to Monaco and taking one of his best players and basically assigning him the role of babysitting him. So Bubba pumped up the crowd again before his opening shot, uh, which he had done at Medina as well. Uh, Ricky and and Jimmy Walker, the half machines, would have with Tomas Bjorn and Martin Keimer. And Keegan and Phil beat Sergio and Rory um, in that morning. And they are, uh, the U.S. is up two and a half to one and a half after the four ball session. So, all right, we got a couple pairings at one, Spieth and Reed and Bradley and Phil. Like, sure enough, they're going back out there, right? Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Wrong. Who, who would, why would it? Oh, uh, Jordan Spieth would say, uh, I was hundred percent certain we were going back out. Tom had told the team it would be depending on how you play in the morning <laughs> for whether or not you would go back out in the afternoon. They were not sent out in the afternoon. Watson said they were very upset with me for not playing them this afternoon. I said, I know you're going to be mad at me, but you'll be playing Saturday for sure. Okay. I don't think that really addressed the problem. <laughs> I thought at the me, time man. it was the best decision not to play them. Uh, okay. This I forget where this article is from. Fair enough. What were the reasons for the decision? Uh, I won't go into those, says Tom Watson. Oh. Um, I can see this like a lot of Zach acting like this. I won't. I'm not going to go into that. Like I, <laughs> uh, when I, Watson would go on to say, when I told Patrick that he wasn't going to play in the afternoon, it was comical at the time and not so comical now. I said, "How does that make you feel?" He said, "Well, I'm all right with it." He said, "Well, really, Captain, I'm not all right with it." I said, "That's the way I want you to be." <laughs> <laughs> What lesson have you learned from this? I love your fire, but you're not playing. <laughs> he says, you're going to be second guessed. And obviously you're going to second guess me on that decision right there. I, I have to search this. I, I think I remember almost saying like uh, on Twitter in 2014, like this is not second guessing. This is first guessing. Like this is your pairing. Send them back out. The, the original plan was not to send Phil and Keegan back out. Again, Phil's 44 years old, um, you know, on a, on a visiting Ryder Cup team. Um, but they do send them back out for that afternoon. Is this the deal where I'm sorry to interrupt, but is, is this the deal where Phil is like tells Watson, I'm putting everything I have into this match. Like I don't want to play in the afternoon. Is, that is, is that- 2012. Um, okay. So they, he and Keegan played um, th- 36 holes on the Friday. They won that. And then they were playing Saturday morning and they had, he had told Davis, like I'm putting everything I have into this match. Don't play me in the afternoon. We're not going to go back out. And they won that match. And then they didn't send him out for the final match. Momentum flipped and everyone yelled at Davis when in reality, I, that was not the plan. So at least in, like, at least in that one, there was a plan that was stuck to. So Jim Furyk and, and Matt Kuchar go out for afternoon foursomes. Uh, Jamie Donaldson and Lee Westwood beat them two up. Uh, Mayhan and ZJ play together. They lose to Rose and Stenson two and one. Of course, Walker and Fowler have to go back out. Uh, completely. They have their match with Rory and Sergio. Fowler and Walker were two up a three to play, but they lose two of the last three. Uh, Rory blew on way right on 18, but gets right of a tree. Sergio's hitting a fairway wood out of the rough and hits an awesome fairway wood onto the back of the green. They two-putt birdie to have the match. Again, 44-year-old Phil goes back out for this second session. He and Keegan get whomped three and two. Uh, Watson hunted Keegan and Phil down on the eighth tee and accosted them for not hitting a fairway. 
<laughs> what a leader. How dare you? Uh, it is uh, that five to three Europe after the Europeans win three and a half to a half in foursomes like they always dominate. The press conference that night was a mess. Watson was all over the place. He said the plan was to play Bubba twice, but he uh, then, then he also didn't sub in Reed and Spieth and he couldn't name who he subbed in for Bubba and Reed. They're like, okay, well, yeah, the plan, yeah, the plan was for Bubba and Webb. Who did you sub in? And he couldn't name who he put in, in their place. Um, which again, Adam Sarson tweet, McGinley planned to have McDowell go first two years ago. Watson couldn't remember who he put out on Friday instead of Spieth and Reed. <laughs> I, listen, I, there's almost no chance that Phil is listening to this, but Phil, if you are listening to this, you were right about a lot of shit in this yes. Ryder Cup. Yeah, like I will you, agree with that. I can see, I can 100% understand why this was building. I think the one of the things that the idea that has that Phil was somehow like unclassy or whatever, it this shit had to be yep. done the way that it, it does. What's coming had to be done yep. because of how monumentally bad, badly managed they were in this Ryder Cup. Watson left the team with this quote: "It's five to three. That's two matches." You win two matches, you're back to even. You win four, you're up by two. That's the way this Ryder Cup works, and that's the reality of it. I have to say, I'm good with it. <laughs> what inspiring shit. I mean, that is a true call to arms, adding up the math. Uh, Saturday morning, four ball. We have Rosen Stenson going out first against Bubba Watson, this time paired with Matt Kuchar. Rosen Stenson uh, demolished them three and two. Not Bubba and Kuchar's fault. Rosen Stenson were 12 under as a team, which is a Ryder Cup record. Wow. Um, Furick and Mayhan went out that morning again in four ball and, and won four and three over Donaldson and Westwood. Reed and Spieth again back together. They go ape shit. It is peak Reed. Uh, they beat Bjorn and Keimer five and three. Is this the shushing? Is when the shushing, shushing was comes to the following day. This is just okay, Reed gotcha. just amping everybody up um rory and Poulter play a match with ricky and jimmy walker can you guess what happens in that match they have yeah, yeah. as they always do Poulter was kicking it around the whole match but he managed a huge chip in on the back nine and of course he drained a 12 footer on 18 for the half if you remember Poulter's game was not in very good shape for this guy he did not have a very good rider cup but like he just did what he needed to in that moment um europe's lead is down to six and a half five and a half so you know of course uh, you know, Jimmy and Ricky who have had their first three matches and have been the only team that have played all three matches. Surely enough, they're going to rest in the afternoon. Yeah. Phil and Keegan sat out the morning. Surely they're going to play in the afternoon. Watson would say they didn't perform at all that well yesterday afternoon. They really wanted to go today. These are the best pairings for alternate shot. And he would send out Bubba and Kuchar, Furick and Mahan, Reed and Spieth, and Walker and Fowler out for a fourth time. Watson said... I expected exactly what Phil said to me. He said, we can get it done. I said, well, the way this course sets up, the four teams I put out there give us the best chance. Phil lobbied again, give us a chance. I had to tell him no. I think Phil was really pissed about yes. this. I remember he was texting yes. Watson in, in almost in really angry. It was like the boiling point of like, I cannot believe that this is going Well, down. it's just a downstream effect of a panic decision on day one, which was um, like sending – Phil and Keegan back out for the afternoon enforcements, which was not the plan. Now they played 36 holes. They played shitty in that afternoon session. So now you got to rest in the next morning and then they played bad in the foursomes. So now that afternoon, you're not in a huge hurry to get them out for foursomes. It's just no game plan at all. And speaking to no game plan, Furick and Mahan, who win their match four and three in the morning, get told, 
You guys are playing foursomes in the afternoon. Haven't not a part of the plan at any point. Didn't weren't familiar with each other's golf balls. I believe at this point, I don't know what the one ball rule was or whatnot. It's not much of a factor now, but this was a bigger deal back then. I, I believe, and they go to the range and start messing around with each other's golf balls and who's deciding whose ball they're going to play for match play that afternoon. Always a great sign in the middle of a Ryder Cup when you're going to the range to figure out somebody else's <laughs> golf ball for the first time. <laughs> Again, I want to acknowledge here Watson saying about like about players he doesn't know at all without any statistical analysis at all. Total eye test how he comes up with the four pairings that give him the best chance. Uh, again, this is total, just total gut, um, which brings me again back to the famous Watson quote, often wrong, but never in doubt. When asked later if he regretted not playing Mickelson, Watson said no. Just <laughs> <So, laughs> <laughs> a flat out no. Afternoon foursomes goes probably how you'd expect. Donaldson and Westwood beat CJ and Kuchar two and one. Uh, Sergio and Rory beat Furyk and May and the, the the hasty pairing that was put together. They beat them three and two. Keimer and Rose split um, with Spieth and Reed. Reed missed a very short putt, 18 inches as I was, was uh, described on the 16th hole that ends up costing them uh, the full point. Uh, Dubuisson and McDowell demolish an exhausted Ricky and Jimmy Walker. Again, speaking to like a rested Dubuisson and McDowell. The pairing that that McDowell that McGinley came up with months, if not years prior, going up against a hastily made team that was trotted out for their second straight 36-hole day. Uh, Jimmy Walker hit a shank in the third fairway. Watson would go on to say, it may have been a mistake that I put Jimmy and Ricky out for four matches. Cannot He cannot help himself, though. He finishes the quote, I thought they could handle it. Just again pushing the blame on them. Like it may have been a mistake, but I thought they could handle it. Uh, even in that moment, he puts it on them. It's quite remarkable. Wow. McDowell <laughs> after the round comments, specifically comments on the fatigue of Walker and, uh, and says Dubuisson and, and he and Dubuisson got energy from the fact that they had no energy and the McGinley's plan was working to perfection. Europe goes six Oh and two in foursomes. Um, he's Watson would say that night. Two. If I had to second guess myself, I think it was based on just a couple players getting tired. Might have done it differently if I knew they were going to be that way. <laughs> Again, putting it on the players for getting tired. Um, Watson said, do we play well enough to win? And obviously we haven't in the last two Ryder Cups. It's up to the players. It's up for the actors to go out there and act. They haven't acted well enough to get that standing ovation at the end in the last two Ryder Cups. At this point, I, am a, I feel like Paul McGinley is like Gordon Bombay of the Mighty Ducks. And mm -hmm. Tom Watson is uh, what's uh, Jack Riley's the coach of the opposing <laughs> Mighty Ducks team. Like he is the textbook of like, all right, I got all the players. I'm going to run the team this old archaic way. And McGinley rallies the team. Like he, Tom Watson's just the villain in this movie of like how not to uh, run a team. Going back to Paul McGinley's plan into Sunday, he sends GMAC out first. He plays Watson like a fiddle. They run uh, Jordan Spieth back out of fatigue. Jordan Spieth, uh, Spieth gets out to a three-up lead, um, but McGinley comes roaring back and beats Spieth two and one. A fan heckles Patrick Reed on the first tee before his match against Henrik Stenson about practicing his putting after the short miss on 16. Um, he gives him a he gives him his first shush of the day. Uh, Reed goes apeshit, sunk a, a, a second straight birdie to have a hole on the seventh, and turns to the pro European crowd. Gives them the famous shush sign all the way off the green and says, come on, like, encouraging them to keep yelling at him. I don't know if he made up his mind if he wanted to be quiet or yell at him because he gives them both motions. But 
Uh, it was great. He was great. He, he goes on to win his match, club twirling up the 18th, stalking his approach into the final green uh, and winning his match. It, it was, I, I tweeted this earlier this week, but it's good to know. I wish you could know you're in the good old days before they've passed because the, the sentiment that Reed had built up would be gone here in a couple, a few years later. So I remember telling you that I tweeted something. I was like, I love cheering for Patrick Reed. Like, sorry, not sorry. We were talking about it years later. And I was like, God, that, that got like a thousand retweets. And you looked it up and it was like six retweets. I was like, oh, <laughs> different era of Twitter. Maybe, or maybe uh, everyone w- like went back and undid it. They're like, oh, I got to I got to scrub oh, that oh, one. Yeah, I think this is actually the beginning of our friendship, too, because we had not physically met in 2014, but we're starting to sort of communicate on Twitter. And so I don't even know if you had revealed yourself who you were in real life yet. But, uh. It was a fun rider. Co- I mean, it was fun and not fun. I mean, it was so like the four ball sessions went. The U.S. won the four ball sessions and then just got ass whooped in the foursome sessions. And um, again, Forces, man. Rory Forces. just went out and demolished Ricky Fowler. I believe my tweet at the time was uh, <laughs> Rory just carved R-O-R-Y into the other side of Ricky's head as he beat him five and four. <laughs> Hunter Mahan made four early birdies and had a four-up lead, but Justin Rose made five winning birdies coming in. They end up having that match when Mahan bogeyed the 18th hole um, mm. in the fourth match. Phil beat a, a hapless Stephen Gallagher three and one. Keimer uh, beat Watson four and two. Kuchar demolished Thomas Bjorn four and three. Sergio beat Jim Furyk one up. Um, and then that turned the, the tide over to Jamie Donaldson and Keegan's match, what it was all going to come down to, but Keegan was already Dormy four. Jamie Donaldson steps up and stuffs one in there uh, on the 15th green. It's a walk-off. He doesn't even have to putt it. Jamie Donaldson beats Keegan five and three, and Europe has reclaimed uh, or the Ryder, or has, retains the Ryder Cup, wins the Ryder Cup, whatever you want to say. Didn't Keegan have to shake hands with him in the fairway? Yeah, That's they, didn't even, they didn't even get all the way up to the, to the green. Poulter and Webb Simpson have their match, so Webb gets his redemption. Uh, ZJ and Victor Dubuisson have the final match, and then uh, Westwood and Jimmy Walker, or Jimmy Walker beat Lee Westwood 3-2. and two. But the final is 16.5 to 11.5. So, and now the main event. No, that yeah. is, I don't have anything else after that. Uh, yeah, definitely so. nothing, nothing happened. It just kind of faded into the So we get, huh? get to the press conference afterward. Um a question goes out. Anyone that was on the team at Valhalla, can you put your finger on what worked in 2008 and what hasn't worked since? And uh, I don't have separate music for Lisa Pave or Lisa Pavin, so we're just going to play. <laughs> Phil, after looking around, uh, we, we get to Phil Mickelson. That is Phil Mickelson's music. And he said, there were two things that allow us to play our best that I think Paul Azinger did. And one, he got everyone invested in the process. He got everyone invested in who they were going to play with, who the picks were going to be, who was going to be in their pod, who, when they would play. And they had a great leader for each pod. In my case, we had Ray Floyd and we hung out together and we all invested in each other's play. We were invested in picking Hunter that week. Anthony, Kim and myself and Justin were in a pod and we were involved in having Hunter be our guy to fill the pod. Hmm, Sounds like a boys club. Uh, So we were invested in the process. The other thing that Paul did really well is we had a game plan for each of us. You know, how we were going to go about doing this, how we were going to go about playing together, golf ball format, what we were going to do. If so-and-so is playing well, if so-and-so is not playing well, we had a real game plan. Those two things helped us to bring out our best golf. And I think that, you know, we all do the best we can and we're trying our hardest. I'm just looking back at what gave us the most success because we use that same process in the President's Cup and we do really well. Unfortunately, we have strayed from a winning formula in 2008 for the last three Ryder Cups. We need to consider maybe getting back to that formula that helped us play our best. Question. That felt like a pretty brutal destruction of the leadership that's gone on this week. Mickelson. Oh, I'm I'm sorry you're taking it that way. I'm just... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm just talking about what Paul Azier did to help us play our best. It's certainly, I don't, I don't understand why you would take it that way. You asked me what I thought we should do going toward, 
going forward to bring our best golf out. And I go back to when we played our best golf and replicate that formula. Uh, question. That didn't happen happen this week. Mickelson. Uh, no, no, nobody here was involved in any decision. So no. Um, <laughs> question goes <laughs> Question goes to uh, Azinger or to Mickelson. Uh, can you tell us what you think about what Phil said about Paul Azinger? Uh, I had a different philosophy as far as being a captain of this team. You know, it takes 12 players to win. It's not pods. It's 12 players. Watson, right? Yeah, I'm Watson, sorry. sorry. And I felt, I felt based on my decision on, yes, I talked to the players, but my vice captains were very instrumental in making decisions as to whom to pair with who, whom to pair with. I had a different philosophy than Paul. I decided not to go that way, but I did have most of them play in the practice rounds together who played most of the time in matches, most of the time. Uh, I think that was the proper thing to do. Yes, I did mix and match a little bit from there, but again, you have to go with the evolution of the playing of the match and see who is playing the best and to play who to play with whom, and that's what I did. Um, question, do you think that Phil was being disloyal because it sounded like that? Watson says, not at all. He has a difference of opinion. That's okay. My management philosophy is different than his. Furick would go on to say, um, if I could put my finger on it, I would have changed the shit a long time ago, but we haven't, and we are going to keep searching. Um, I asked Hunter Mayhan about this on the pod a couple years ago about how this played out, um, and here is uh, some of his audio. Not as long as the last one, I promise. Yeah, and I think that's what Phil's message was at that time, was Europe has a plan, and they have a plan of attack, and that's what we were. it felt like, and what it really seemed like we were sort of lacking was they have a process in what they're doing. And you can't tell me that they're just better than us and they're beating us, but they feel so comfortable with what they're doing. And they, it's just, you can see in their play, they just have no doubt about what they're doing when they get there. Like it's already done. And I think the hardest part for us as players was we didn't know what still was going on and who we were playing with. Um, going into, like I said, I didn't know I was playing with, gym until saturday afternoon and i was like you know that's a frustrating thing for a player and changes need to be made and at some point someone's gonna have to speak up and it's okay to be uncomfortable because that's how that's how things uh get done and phil's and phil's the great thing with phil is he has so much respect with all the players and the pga of america and the pga tour that when he says something it has weight and we all supported him in that way. And, and he has the, the, the guts, you know, and we've seen it through time. He has the guts to go out there and put himself out there. And I think we all really um, respected him for that uh, because he wants to win and he wants to compete. Okay, I, 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 I'm not along with all that, really. So that, that's, that's the end of the, of the Tom Watson. Oh, I don't know if you hear the, the bus. If you hear that beeping noise, the bus is coming right back around and we're going to go make sure we're going to run him back over a, uh, on the way in reverse and then run back over in forward direction as well, because um, this is from a, uh, I hope I didn't mess. I think Gene Mojo, I forget where this comes from, but I think it's Bob Herrick actually that I read this from four sources who witnessed the proceedings in the U S team room at Clint Eagles. First of all, I love that part. Four people came forward. Like, four. Here's, the, yeah, exactly. here's the story. <laughs> we, <laughs> Uh, said Watson took no responsibility for any shortcomings, scoffed at a gift that the U.S. team members gave him, ridiculed several European team players, and started the proceedings by denigrating the Americans' play that afternoon. This comes on Saturday evening uh, going into um, the, the singles play. 
They gathered in the team room that night, a hotel ballroom in the lavish Glen Eagles Hotel with TVs, ping pong tables, food and drink. They were joined by their wives or girlfriends, except for Fowler, weird parenthetical there, uh, <laughs> as well as their caddies and their significant others. Some of the hotel staff were in the room, as were a few members of the PGA of America staff. In all, more than 40 people were there when Watson returned to the team room after speaking to the media about Sunday pairings. Watson started by saying, according to all the sources, you stink at foursomes. <laughs> Just the kind of call to arms you want to hear. After praising the rookie team of Patrick Reed and Jordan Spieth, Watson went through the Sunday singles pairings and ridiculed several members of the European side as he went through the matchups. Soon after, Watson was presented a gift by Furyk, a replica of the Ryder Cup trophy that was signed by every member of the team. Instead of thanking them, the sources said Watson said the gift meant nothing to him if the players didn't get the real Ryder Cup on Sunday that he wanted to be holding it aloft on the green in victory. Um, apparently this was like Phil's idea like earlier on, but Phil at this point refused to be the one to present the trophy, um, uh, to him. I said one of the sources that's almost verbatim. He basically said it means nothing to him. Uh, added another. It was fairly shocking that he treated this thoughtful gift with such disdain. Again, according to three witnesses, Watson greeted several of the singles losers Sunday, including Bradley by telling them they should have played better. Um, and so after this like weird speech that he, that, um, Watson gives like a, like some players try to take over and like Phil gets up and has a speech in front of the team and like positions himself with like his back towards Watson to like cut him out of it to basically be like, all right, I, I'm, I'm running this now and goes on to say great things about each player and like give like an actual real kind of speech ahead of it. And it's like, Hey, you know, so-and-so this is what you're great at. You're going to, I have great confidence that you're going to go do this tomorrow, blah, blah, blah. So, uh, more from Jaime Diaz. There were times when Tom seemed so unintentionally mean and tough. I wondered if he was trying to pull a Herb Brooks and get the team to unite by turning against him, said a witness to the week at Glen Eagles, referencing the hockey coach who led the United States to an Olympic gold in 80. Uh, but what he might have been doing to motivate some guys just had them rolling their eyes. More of a recap. Jamie Donaldson does a TV interview the, the morning after on Monday. It still looks messed up and confirms that he's still drunk as he's doing the interview. <laughs> Because I'm still drunk. I remember that. Anytime you wake up drunk, that's yeah. that's a night. <laughs> Bubba went 0-3, pushing his Ryder Cup record on foreign soil to 1-6. Uh, Tom Watson's captain's picks go 2-5-1. Watson left the team party after just a few minutes, of course, after it. Uh, <laughs> uh, later, when Ted Bishop got fi fired over the uh, little girl tweet, Watson turned down his induction into the PGA Hall of America Hall of Fame in protest of Bishop's firing, which I did not know that. Also on this Monday after the Ryder Cup, Charlie Weiss got fired from Kansas after going six and 22. So. All right. Good historical I, I, I think I mean, that was lengthy, but I still feel like I'm leaving something on the table for what a bad job that Watson did. But again, this is the Ryder Cup that like, it took me a few years afterwards to like fully learn. Again, I've said this a million times now, but like this is the, the lens I view the Ryder Cup through now. And like, leaders versus non-leaders and i do want to like, excuse watson a little bit like this was bishop's fault like watson was always going to run the team this way and it was bishop's fault for putting him in in place for that but mm -hmm. that's 2014 you know, you know what's tangentially connected that i do love is that in uh i think it was 16 when they asked phil again about it it was like hey you know do you have any regrets and he was like look i obviously could have handled it better blah 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 and then somehow he he ended up dragging Hal Sutton. <laughs> like, oh, yeah. like, do you remember this? And like someone <laughs> found Hal Sutton. So it's like the the Ryder Cup after <laughs> Phil like completely barbecued Tom Watson. He was like, "Yeah, I have some regrets." And obviously, I put my foot in my mouth and not you know blah blah. And it was a lot of pressure on me to deliver and stuff. But let me tell you about how Hal Sutton sucks. <laughs> <laughs> Just. 
<laughs> the man, I, look, we've we've talked a lot about Phil this year. Phil has made his feelings known that he doesn't care for for us that much anymore. But I just I'm so grateful to have lived in the era of Phil, like producing content sure. uh, and just being nonstop entertaining for us after for all these years. <laughs> for sure. Uh, yeah, I forgot about that. All right. We come finally to 2018. One of the first Ryder Cups. Uh, let's say you and I were we actually watched this Ryder Cup together. A uh, few, one of the few of the young American media uh, at the time. I don't know if I can still call myself young, but who went over to France uh, and uh, got ourselves a, a, a credential and, and saw. I was not this. Did, I went as a fan. Uh, kind of last minute, you? actually. Yeah, with BMW. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> This is the first time I met your wife, uh, if I recall. Um, but uh, yes, the golf is at uh, Le Golf National will come to be a, a definitive character in uh, this Ryder Cup. Very difficult course, as many of you remember. Um, the Americans were sort of implored to go over and play this because it was sort of seen as like nothing that they had had seen before. Um only Justin Thomas went over and played in the French Open, uh, which would sort of prove beneficial to uh, his uh, performance later that year. But it wasn't; it was a little bit overstated that the Americans hadn't seen it. Uh, Jordan Spieth, Bubba Watson, Tony Finau all played the course with Jim Furyk uh, in July. Mickelson snuck over uh, and played around on the way to the Scottish Open. Uh, Brooks had played it when he was on the European Tour, the Challenge Tour, in 2014. So somewhat familiar um, with things, but. Uh, as we soon learned, the Americans were sort of a little bit hamstrung by a couple things that happened in terms of setting up their team uh, for a course fit, notably that uh, Tiger Woods won the Tour Championship, uh, his, his first back. What if he won? Was they, it was we asked over and over, what if, what if he ever came back and won? And Tiger did come back and win, uh, basically putting everything he had into winning that Tour Championship. The week and before. The week the before. Week before. Essentially, Sunday, uh, it happens. You have to get on a plane on Monday and go over to Paris. I think that night they were uh, on a plane, right? Yes, I believe so. So Tiger shows up uh, pretty fucking gassed uh, at this uh, Ryder Cup uh, and still ends up uh, playing four times. Uh, so <laughs> that's a, a good example of perhaps uh, not thinking about things the way that uh, the European captains do. Uh, but in the picks leading up to this uh Phil Mickelson, for the first time in 11 Ryder Cups, this is the 12th Ryder Cup team that he was a part of, but he had qualified on points the previous 11 times, which is bonkers. Uh, he did not play particularly well uh, that summer leading up to this. Uh, he did shoot a 63 that sort of essentially nudged him onto the team, made it really hard for uh, Jim Furyk, the captain, to sort of pass him over. Uh, and I will say... To all the people who say that Phil was obviously a stupid pick for this, uh, Phil, and I actually wrote this in one ESPN.com. Uh, I want to read this. Is my, I'm going to call myself out here uh, in this. Uh, there's been a surprising amount of criticism about Mickelson making the team as a captain's pick this year, which is somewhat odd considering he's having his best season statistically in years. He's fourth on the PGA Tour in strokes gained putting and fourth in birdie average. No one on the tour has been better this year at approach shots from 150 to 175 yards, which seems like a pretty important distance. Mickelson took a lot of heat for being so critical of U.S. Captain Tom Watson at Glen Eagles, but in reality, that moment is the reason the United States now has a consistent plan going into every Ryder Cup. It's not strategy that gets slapped together on a napkin five days before the event. 
Yes, it was cruel to play the role of Brutus to Watson's Julius Caesar the way he did right after the United States got crushed on European soil yet again. But something something that gets lost in remembering that moment is that Mickelson told the truth. Players weren't involved in any decision under Watson. Now Mickelson and Woods behind the scenes have almost much input as Furyk. That's a good thing. For all the angst over his overall Ryder Cup record, he's 7-3-0 in the last three. So maybe Phil's like justifiable this is a pretty you know decent uh selection here i uh i will say I i'm a, the king of second guessing i had no qualms with the phil pick and i have a, a quote here from a, oh, a no. prominent golf podcaster oh, here no. her solomon saying they got the right guys you'll not have second guessing from me i would probably sub bubba off the team if i could i think patrick cantley would slide in nicely particularly on this course and I'm sure that won't be a popular take considering his three wins this year, but I think they got 11 out of 12 right. I'm even good on Webb Simpson. You could take away his player's win, and I'd still want him on the team. Which it only turns st- out to be pretty impressive. Okay. Right. You, Thank you. you I got something here. right about that Ryder Cup. But uh, yeah. I think uh, upon seeing the golf course, though, which I will put, again, I'm just a talking head. Nobody should take what I say seriously, but like, I feel I do upon hindsight, like as soon as I walked it, I was like, oh God, this ain't Phil. Like, oh my God, this ain't Phil, which I will put on the captains a little bit to say, like, you got to have the vision for that kind of thing because it became incredibly apparent. I think you're going to get to it that Phil was unplayable in this Ryder Cup. Correct. And and you know who said that afterwards was Phil. Uh, since we're calling, I'm going to, I'm going to read something here. Uh, ESPN had a little thing where, um, writers were asked to, um, predict, uh, who would be the sort of hidden MVP of the Ryder cup. Who's the hero of the Ryder cup. And one Kevin Van Valkenburg said, Sergio Garcia is going to summon some old magic and play the way he hasn't in months. He'll win a few close matches and keep Europe in it until the very end, knowing this might be his last Ryder cup in Europe as a player. So that turned out to be pretty prescient. Uh, what wasn't prescient was when Ken Van Vogtberg wrote this about Patrick Reed in ranking of the Ryder Cup, uh, who's most important in the Ryder Cup uh, team, all, ranked all 24 players. On one hand, this is Patrick Reed was ranked number two behind Justin Rose as the most important person in the Ryder Cup uh, squads. On one hand, this ranking assumes he's going to continue his incredible run in Ryder Cups and not regress toward the mean. On the other hand, all available evidence points to the case that Reed might have been born for this event. He might be the American Sevy, the man who didn't care if he rubbed people the wrong way and lived for this event every two years. After what he did against Rory McIlroy in singles two years ago, when the pair battled in one of the epic singles matches in Ryder Cup history, the number one spot in these rankings is Reed until someone takes it away from him. He's earned it. He doesn't drive it the farthest. He isn't the best iron player in the world, and he isn't the best putter. In this event, that doesn't matter. He's unafraid of the moment. It'll be interesting to see who United States captain Jim Furyk pairs with Reed. Obviously, Reed and Spieth have had great success together, losing just once in seven matches. But with Spieth struggling, it seems unlikely he'll play five times, meaning Reed will need a new partner for at least one match. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> that didn't turn out to be uh so so smart anyway just to kind of run down uh you know the teams here sergio garcia got a captain's pick here and was somewhat uh controversial uh surprisingly so uh i want to read here a piece from the guardian uh bjorn has admitted this is thomas bjorn the captain has admitted that garcia's off course influence was a defining factor five rookies had earlier claimed automatic berths for europe and the dane clearly regards that as a risk if not offset by Ryder cup specialism Garcia has represented Europe eight times, winning 22 and a half points. 
I can't pinpoint what a European team room is, Bjorn said. I can't tell you exactly what that makes it great, but I know one thing I know is Sergio is right at the center of it every single time. He makes that team so much better. So he has so many qualities, not just as a player, but he is a world-class player. I think that this is going to make everybody around him, everybody on the team better. You need to make the team work. You need to make that environment correct for everybody, and he is right at the center of doing that. We need people that can rise to the occasion, that can up their game, and that can make the man standing next to them better. Sergio does that. He's the one that stands up and gives a speech to others, and he has done that in the past. He's the one that stands up on Thursday night and rallies the troops. He's also the one on Saturday night when you're four points ahead who says, okay, this is by no means over yet because he knows that. He's been there. When pressed on whether Garcia would have been picked virtually regardless of individual results, Bjorn replied, I feel like if I had to go a long, long way to leave him out of my mind, I wanted him there. Europe's, Europe's captain did accept reasoning attached to the criticism and skepticism. In sport, people tend to go with just performance, so that's easy to measure. So that would have been from the outside. I understand. I understand that's the way people look at it, but when you sit in my role, Patrick Harrington put it best. He always said, it's not about picking the best players. It's about picking the best team. And that's what the picks are for. So does that remind you of any current situation? I mean, can we just get a video dubbing in a different name for Sergio in that? <laughs> it's so much bigger than you can imagine. So it's genius when the Europeans do it, but boys club when the U.S. does it. We're, we're on that note. Yes. Okay, okay. Clicks. Correct. Clicks or whatever you want to what do you call it. So in the lead up to the Ryder Cup, uh, some people um, thought that, you know, this was going to go really well for the U.S. That you know, and, and you know, two people on this podcast included. Oh, no. But we didn't have some of the, I would say, the the uh, most outlandish takes. Mm. Alan Shipnuck, who will come up later, <laughs> said, uh, "I see the U.S. winning this sixteen to twelve. That's so the beginning. This is Alan had written a column basically saying uh, that the Ryder Cup is in danger of being obsolete because the U.S. is going to be so good from this point going on going forward." Michael Bamberger, his colleague at the time uh, at golf, uh, golf.com, agreed with him and said, I would go bigger. I think the U.S. is going to win by a touchdown. <laughs> Seven points. Which could he touchdown is six points. Maybe he just meant six. It could, he didn't say that's touchdown. It could have been, yeah. It didn't add the extra point. Uh, our, our friend Luke Cardenine said, uh, I think one day we'll look back on this American Ryder Cup team like we look back at the dream team in the Olympics. <laughs> You got, if we're going to bury others, I hope you have some quotes for me as to. Uh, uh, I got one from uh, Kyle Porter here. This year's team us is loaded to the gills and Europe is well, not the lowest ranked player on the U S side is Phil Mickelson, who is ranked 25th in the world. The U S used captain's picks on two of the 10 best players ever Mickelson and woods winners of three, four playoff events. That's woods and Bryson DeChambeau and three of the top six in the final FedEx cup standings woods DeChambeau and Tony Fino. Those were our captain's picks exclamation point. Justin Ray says the U.S. Ryder Cup team has an average world rank of 11.2, the best of any team, U.S. or Europe, since the world ranking began in 1986. So it seems like, uh, despite the fact that it had been 25 years, something at this point that the U.S. had won in Europe, uh, that they were big favorites. Seems like this is going to go really well, right? Because uh, we, yeah, I mean, no between, this, between 2014 and 18, the task force is formed. They have a new plan for rolling mm -hmm. captaincies mm -hmm. out. They have a whole yep. new plan. They won handily at Hazeltine, and it looked like, all right, Europe's kind of turning over a little bit here. Like it's 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 time for the U.S. to to go over and do this. Yep. 
And in morning four balls, U.S. comes out pretty badass. All right. Uh, Brooks Kepka and Tony Finau pair up. And they beat John Rahm and Justin Rose in a match where they were two down with four to play. Uh, Tony Finau famously hit a shot that bounced off of the uh, the wood sort of structure outside of on the, the 16th hole and bounced and landed like three feet from the hole to make a birdie. Uh, they flipped that match. Uh, it was just like a sort of a stunning moment. I remember, I think you were tweeting like all kinds of American flag memes. Uh, Dustin Johnson and Ricky Fowler just whooped on Rory McIlroy and Thorborn Olsen. Rory was the only player on the course who did not make a birdie uh, in that moment. And of course, our boys... Jordan Spieth and Justin Thomas paired together. They come out. They've broken up the famous uh, Spieth and uh, Jordan Spieth and Patrick Reed pairing. JT uh, and Spieth win. They beat Paul Casey and uh, and Cyril Hatton one up. Uh, the only disappointment of the morning was that Patrick Reed and Tiger Woods fell three to one to Francesco Molinari and Tommy Fleetwood, uh, a pair of lads who. No one really saw coming as being uh, paired together. No one understood exactly what they had in common or why you'd put sort of two relatively short hitters together. But as we would come to learn in years uh, past that the, the the statistical modeling that the uh, European tour had so nailed in this suggested that they would be amazing partners together. And of course, uh, they were uh, basically kicking ass in every single one of their matches. But so let's say that things seem to be going well at this point for the United States. They're up Three to one there, you know, the, the morning's gone so well. It feels like, oh, Europe is is on tilt. Uh, it does not <laughs> happen the way that everyone sort of foresaw in the afternoon that day as we switch to foursomes. The Americans have traditionally been not particularly great uh, in this format, but it goes historically bad as they get swept across the board, uh, losing all four matches Uh DJ and Ricky Fowler get beat by Stenson and Rose. Rory and Rory show some life, and he and Ian Poulter whoop up on Bubba and Webb. Garcia and Alex Noren thump Mickelson and Bryson DeChambeau in a match that goes comically bad. As I, Kasali, can you remember what they were down at the turn? Uh, I'll get through nine holes. What they six were. down, seven down. Oh my god. <laughs> Seven down. Now, <laughs> they, <laughs> this is, uh, if you will remember, uh, <laughs> the the infamous uh, deal where Phil was hitting irons off the tee and still hitting them in the water. <laughs> <laughs> so Phil had been practicing like he had he'd been really quite lost. He had not played well in about a month, leading uh, some some of the panic. Uh, coming into this, but he had said he had been grinding on the range like every day. And he basically, while the morning matches were going on, Phil was on the range oh, no. for like two hours, just like beating balls, basically said, I was just trying to find something. Uh, Bryson, first ever Ryder Cup, uh, if, you know, had won playoff events, this was sort of the, the beginning of the rise of, of the brief time when Bryson was, um, he wasn't quite like one of the world's best players, but it was trending in that direction. It was more science than brute strength at this point nobody was questioning this pick coming into it i mean he was balling it was the billy horschel like all right well i mean horschel balled out in the playoffs and didn't make the team because the timing like there's no possible chance you left bryson at home it would have been seen i think as a huge whiff like there would have been massive criticism if somehow they didn't take bryson phil who knows like i i think you could argue that 
Furyk could have said to Phil, like, hey, I think this is a terrible course fit for you. I really want you as an assistant captain. Like, I just don't want to take you. Uh, and I really would love to take Xander Schauffele, who would have been a great fit for this course, actually finished 12th in points that year. Uh, people think this would have been sort of too early to have taken uh, Xander. But really, Xander had sort of proved himself, had already finished in the in majors top 10, had won the Tour Championship the previous year. Uh, Xander was not like an outside-of-the-box uh, pick. If you are, especially if you're thinking about like course fit, someone who drives it straight, someone who's a you know, good iron player who, um, but was never really like sort of all that serious in the conversation, uh, just because of Phil being such a, a big name and because of Tiger, obviously Tiger was going to get picked one or another, particularly, you know, with the summer that he had. And then of course, Bryson wins two playoff events. Like you're going to take him for sure. Thinking back on this time again, it's, it's obvious in hindsight, but like Phil was a presence and he was coming off a good Ryder cup in 16 and the architect of changing over this team, it was kind of, I remember that feeling of like, if Phil wants to play, he's kind of earned that right. He's played played awesome at Medina, whatever the hell happened at, at Glen Eagles. He played awesome at Hazeltine. I know those are home ones, but it was just kind of like, dude, kind of putting the ball in his hands of like, I, I expect you to come ball out. If you want this that bad, come bring it. And so, again, it, it I don't know. I remember it making sense, again, until we saw the golf course. Yep. Uh, so Europe is then has a 5-3 lead. Uh, it's the first time that they've swept a session since 1989 and the first sweep of foursomes in Ryder Cup history. Wow. That's how bad it was. Think no, about how many Ryder Cups they've played. None of the matches uh, made to the 17th hole. That is I remember they, like it, it ended early. Everyone's kind of like, oh, I guess we're yeah. done with golf for the day. It was still really bright out. Usually, if you were sitting like on 17 or 18 and you didn't get to see a single <laughs> shot all day, like if you had set up hoping for a drama, you were kind of fucked. Uh, so I have some I have some sad news to report. Uh, you know how we've always talked about how um, that when Patrick Reed shot 84 and said that uh, or 85 and said that Tiger apologized to him, right? That actually came the next day. Patrick played poorly in the, the he, he played like a complete disaster uh, the the following day, and it was he said that Tiger in the infamous New York Times article had apologized to him for their first performance when Patrick did not play all that poorly so i'm sad to sort of ah, you know I, uh, fact check this legend here i uh, scrub this i think I mean, we need to we need to let that live on it delete 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 uh so things continue to go i, I still uh, don't believe the tiger ever would ever apologize to a partner and be like yeah i played bad sorry dude i don't think that would ever happen so things continue to go poorly on saturday in the morning four balls uh as i said Patrick Reed, complete shit show. Uh, one of the worst kind of, I think, Ryder Cup performances that we can remember. Uh, our, our dear friend Brendan Porath uh, sort of tweets out, what would Reed have shot today if he had kept his own card? And an astute reader said, if you gave him a bogey for every dash on his card, which is almost certainly giving him multiple strokes, he's plus nine through 14, and then he hit it in the water in 15 again. He missed all eight fairways to start out the first things um that's sad so things go very poorly uh in other pairings too uh paul casey and terrell hatton beat up on dj and ricky fowler uh, sergio and rory uh beat up on on uh, brooks and finau jordan spieth and justin thomas beat ian poulter and john rom which prevents the united states from losing its ninth consecutive match oh my god uh, they were out last uh, yes, they were out last. So, like, if they had, and it was close, uh, they uh, ended up winning two and one. 
uh, Spieth made a, a sort of a huge clutch birdie on 17 to sort of slam the door on that match. Uh, you know, if they had sort of uh, not turned around and won that match, uh, imagine that like having just—it was basically the only thing that that even like made the Ryder Cup seem like it was still a possibility. It was eight four Europe at that point, but you know, if it's if it's eight and a half uh, to th- to three and a half or nine and a half to three at that point, it's like, what are we even doing here? The, the U.S. managed to, to salvage a split uh, in afternoon foursomes. Uh, Henrik Stenson, we don't we want to talk about like being used properly in the Ryder Cup. Uh, Stenson had struggled a lot with his game coming into this Ryder Cup. Everyone was sort of speculating like whether he should be on the team, whether he should even play at all during singles. Uh, and expertly, like during team play, you just you know, Bjorn used him. You're only going to play in uh, in alternate shot. Uh, this is what I, I want you to pair with Justin Rose each time. Henrik went three and zero. It seemed like a you know just a brilliant use of you know his. He was their stats guy, like driving accuracy. That was their mm-hmm. like, hey, he's going to tee off on these holes, and he like hit fairway, 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 fairway. I remember seeing some stuff about that, and then uh, he was going up. I think one of them he was going up against Bubba, right? I remember somebody, one of their stats guys, tweeting yep. like, "Here's Stenson's last eight tee shots: fairway, fairway, fairway. Good luck, Bubba." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so it's uh, it's ten six going into singles, uh, and you know we've seen ten six before. Like it's probably not totally out of the realm of possibility, but some things have to go uh, really right for United States. Uh, Justin Thomas comes out and has a, a pretty badass slug match with Rory McIlroy. Uh, he's one up leading at eighteen. Rory drives it in the fairway bunker, has to hit kind of a. Hero miracle shot doesn't hits the lip goes into the water where he ends up conceding in 18 fairway and it's like holy shit like you know our Ryder Cup lion just beat you know their you know their best Ryder Cup player like this this could happen uh dear reader it did not happen (laughs) (laughs) Webb Simpson won and Tony Finau won but until then it was like a bloodbath for like six straight matches I mean Rom beats Tiger uh in you know a pretty epic match this, this is like rom acting like you know hulk hogan and, and thumping his chest and being you know basically being like i've lived out a dream i've beat tiger Woods in the Ryder cup uh pretty cool emotional moment ian poulter thumps dustin johnson number one player in the world dustin johnson uh goes one in three uh this Ryder cup just or excuse me goes one in four uh pretty like if you're looking for reasons why it didn't go well for jim furick the number one thing you could probably point to is that his best player was pretty shitty. Like he was, remember Dustin Johnson was like fiddling with different putters, like right before the, the Ryder cup had started. He, he just couldn't figure out like pace of putts or making short putts. And he just he missed, you know, watch some of the videos of, he just missed a shit ton of putts. That's where uh, like when people are asking like, well, if DJ went up five and oh, in the last one, why wouldn't he be on this team? It's like, man, I, those memories from, from France are pretty strong. Right. And I don't, that doesn't mean he would play horribly this go around, but like, I, I just am not itching to add him to this 2023 team. Only three players ended up in the U S with uh, winning records. Justin Thomas went four and one Jordan speed three, two and an O Webb Simpson, uh, two and one and Tony Finau, two and one. So, uh, when you only win, you know, what, what, like 10 and a half points, like it's, it's going to get pretty bloody pretty quickly. Uh, sort of lasting, one of the lasting memories, uh, Phil going up against, uh, Francesco Molinari, 
uh, hits an iron. And I, I like to joke that he conceded while the ball was in the air. <laughs> Didn't quite work out that way. Like he waited until it splashed, uh, at least, uh, I think it was the 16th hole when then he shook uh, Mahler's hand for the winning point. Uh, I was, uh, of course, you know, in France for ESPN writing about this, tweeted that the uh, media center erupted in excitement uh, after uh, and was scolded by John Huggan, uh, who said that this did not happen. And I was like, John, I'm literally in the press room, like seeing this unfold. So he's like, well, it was a, it was a, you know, just a few people. Uh, no, it was not like people, all the European media all throughout the day was like, every time John Rahm would make a putt was like roaring with approval. So the idea that the American media is <laughs> like jingoist and, and jingoist is quite, uh, I, I swear I didn't write this down, but I know for a fact that this happened, that the, the Brookline thing came up again <laughs> in an article in a pre thing where he interviewed someone who was talking about how the sting was still there. We're talking about 19 years, Sully. <laughs> That's, I mean, they just will never, ever let it go. <laughs> so where uh, things get uh, enjoyable for the Americans, as they often do. Wait, did Reed is, do some shishing? Yes, sorry. Patrick Reed won his yeah. uh, singles match. Uh, and in what is, <laughs> I think, maybe one of the better Patrick Reed moments of all time, uh, shushes people uh, while he's... I, like while the U.S. is down like six points, I think they'd already lost the cup, and I think he was shushing I, people. Maybe I, I think that's you know he, he sort of played it off like it was a joke. He he beat Hatton uh, three and two, but he was uh, shushing people uh, during. The- <laughs> so it's Tiger that was weighing him down. That's all he needed to go win a match. Very strange Ryder Cup for Tiger. Uh, you know, seemed very very out of it uh, at the end of it. Was like I I thought honestly that he fell asleep in the press conference afterwards. Like I, you know, this was a person who was in a lot of pain. Uh, then I, I was really wonder like what was going on with him. I mean, if slurring his words in a TV interview, that uh, one interview was, Oh man, was it was like, but, dude, I, this is not good. This is really yeah. not good. Which just goes to show. I mean, like, I, I mean, he, he only sat one session. There had to be a better way to use him i mean you know they didn't play him in in foursomes one of the days when i mean you you'd think that that would be a pretty effective way to use tiger i mean that's the way that the euros used stenson and worked out great for them uh so yeah. if you want to sort of go back and, and nitpick uh on stuff uh th- that would be a, a good way to sort of <clears throat> look at it um your boy uh, Kevin Vogberg wrote a, a somewhat, I don't know if they have to say it was scathing column, but uh, certainly a column kind of taking to task uh, the end of the Phil and Tiger era uh, caused enormous um, uproar in terms of people saying that, you know, I, I essentially said like, hey, you know what? This is not uh, a small sample size anymore. These two dudes have had their shot. Like they're the common denominator in like a lot of this uh you know, poor play. And I essentially said like, this should be their last Ryder cup. Like they don't need to be a part of teams going forward, uh, which logically makes pretty good sense. Like they're old as shit and they've not had success in the Ryder cup and they've caused, you know, a lot of, I don't know, weird energy in the team room. I mean, like one of the things I definitely remember is Spieth and, uh, and Thomas were rubbing Phil Mickelson's belly in between shots uh, on uh, the late uh, Saturday, uh, trying to sort of, use him as a rally monkey. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but, uh, 
dear readers were were quite upset with uh, with Mr. Van Vogelberg for suggesting such a thing. It, at the very end of my column, um, people were asked if it was sort of sad that uh, you know Phil's last swing on a Ryder Cup was a shot that splashed into the water. Uh, and someone asked Ricky about it and he said, you know, I don't know. It ends where it ends. And I said, he was talking about the 2018 Ryder cup, but he could have just as easily been talking about the end of an era. Things get, uh, entertaining, not quite as entertaining as at Glen Eagles, uh, in the press conference. Yeah, after. It's pretty close. <laughs> really? What I will say is most of it happens in the aftermath. Uh, it doesn't happen in the actual press conference in part because, for whatever reason, uh, no one would ask Patrick a direct question about it. Uh, I believe, I think it was, I remember it was Brian Racker posed a question uh, to Jordan Spieth and Patrick. How did you feel about your guys' pairing being broken up? Like, And the two of them, I remember this specifically, like turned and looked at each other down the dais. And there were several seconds of like very awkward silence and basically patrick later said like i was looking to light up the room like phil did uh tom watson uh and spieth jumped in and sort of answered and i I can't remember his answer but it was very diplomatic and and you know furic did as well and i said to karen kraus as i a friend of mine who was working for the new york times at the time like we should try to grab patrick as he's like walking out of the room she had a pretty good relationship with patrick and I was like, you know, you should definitely try to ask him because I think he's about ready to blow. And she was like, totally, yes. She, as Patrick was walking out of the room, says, you know, hey, Patrick, can you have one more time? And he says to her, hey, call me. And so <laughs> Karen gets Patrick uh, and asks him, you know, what did you think essentially about this? And writes what is, you know, the most memorable piece about this Ryder Cup, <laughs> which <laughs> which again, read from it. number one rule with America's yeah. leaders, blame the Americans. You got to start backstabbing yeah. each other. <laughs> All right. So this is Karen. Uh, it starts with a preamble essentially about how uh, it's a column. So it's, um, it's not like a breaking news piece, but it's sort of talking about, um, why you know why the decision was made to split them up? Furyk said the decision to split Spieth and Reed up had been his call, as Reed silently seethed. The news conference ended in a telephone interview less than an hour later. Reed expressed his frustrations and how the pairings were handled. He said he had conveyed to Furyk his desire to be paired with Spieth, who is not a good friend, but with whom he has chemistry that is hard to pinpoint, much less replicate. Spieth was his first choice. Reed said his second choice, he said, was Woods, whom he said he loved. But Reed fully expected to be paired with Spieth and felt blindsided, he said, (laughs) when Furyk decided to pair Spieth with Justin Thomas, who starred with Ricky Fowler in last year's President's Cup. Spieth and Thomas have known each other since childhood and are great friends, but Reed didn't see why that should have been a factor in splitting up the two winning pairings, Spieth and Reed and Thomas and Fowler. Reed described the decision-making process as a buddy system that ignores (laughs) the input of all but a select few players. The issue is obviously with Jordan not wanting to play with me, Reed said, adding, I don't have any issue with Jordan. When it comes right down to it, I don't care if I like the person I'm paired with or if the person likes me as long as it works and it sets up the team for success. He and I know how to make each other better. We know how to get the job done. Spieth and Thomas went 3-1 and one as a team. Their lone loss was by 5-4 and four to Molinari and Fleetwood. Fowler went 1-2 and two while playing with Dustin Johnson, the world's number one. Reed and Woods lost their first match against Fleetwood and Molinari, after which Reed said Wood apologized for letting him down. He said he told him, we win together as a team and we lose together as a team. 
Reed expected Furyk to tweak the pairings for the first session. I thought he might go back with the groups that have worked in the past, he said, noting that Europe's captain Thomas Bjorn sent McElroy back out with Ian Poulter in the afternoon after he lost in the morning when paired with Fjordborn Olsen. Instead, Reed was benched in the afternoon as Woods. The next morning, Reed again, as was Woods. The next morning, Reed again played with Woods, and again they lost to Molnar and Fleetwood as Reed dumped multiple balls in water hazards. Reed didn't play the second session, afternoon in the session. For somebody as successful in the Ryder Cup as I am, I don't think it's smart to sit me twice. Reed, <laughs> Reed, who earned the nickname Captain America for his fiery play in the 2014 and 2016 Ryder Cups, was the ninth match off the first tee in single session. Unless the United States staged a furious comeback, the outcome was not going to rest on his shoulders. He played well, giving himself a birdie putt on every hole in the front nine, but it didn't matter. Europe had secured the victory by the time he had finished Hatton off. When Reed and Spieth were asked about their split up in the interview, <laughs> Reed said, I was him like I was about to light up the room and fill, like Phil did in 14. Reed thought of all the inspirational sayings he had read in the team room. Every day I saw, leave your egos at the door, Reed said, referring to the Europeans. They do that better than us. If only Patrick, we could leave our egos at the door like Patrick Reed does. <laughs> yes. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it actually doesn't stop there. Uh, if you remember, Reed then got on the phone with the New York Post uh, and as a sort of a follow, because in anyone knows in the New York media market, like you can't get beat on uh, a story like this. You got to sort of uh, go. And and this was where Reed uttered the sort of infamous quote, well, I'm 3-0 and in singles. Uh <laughs> I forgot about he that one. He also followed up with a, the confirming that Tiger had apologized to him uh, after their uh, their lost their uh, four ball match. So <laughs> things things get even hairier. Oh my god! Uh, because on the flight home, Brooks Kepka and Dustin Johnson get into a near fight and have to be pulled apart before they come to blows. I just I don't get why people say team chemistry matters in these things. I just don't get it. <laughs> Former best buds, Dustin Johnson and Brooks Kepka, nearly coming to blows. Uh, and of course, Karen's story is published uh, while they're flying back over the Atlantic. And people start seeing the story and are like furious with Reed, who's sitting on the <laughs> fucking plane. <laughs> so, the U.S. is, I don't think that Dustin Johnson, Patrick Reed, or Dustin Johnson, um, Brooks thing is related to all the Patrick thing. But those two, imagine this, I want to fucking 30 for 30 just on this plane flight. <laughs> Because you got poor Jim Furyk, who's like put his heart and soul into this fucking Ryder Cup for two years. You got DJ and Brooks who are fighting. I've heard many rumors over the years about what this is about, and none of them which I can repeat. Uh, but I, who knows? Like the two of them, you know, have never quite uh, weird. mended fences entirely since then. Uh, they used to be, you know, big workout buddies and stuff. Uh, but you know, who knows what what the result of that was. Uh, and then you got people reading the fucking story about Patrick, uh, basically, you know, barbecuing all of their uh, all the selections. Uh, Solly, uh, in a, in a story that I wrote for ESPN that never actually got published for a number of reasons, I actually talked to Jim Furyk uh, about this, uh, and I'm going to go ahead and uh, sort of uh, discuss this. I said to Jim Furyk, um, you know, I went up to him at Riviera, and I said, you know, I'm. I'm Writing a story about Patrick Reed, and I, I really would love to talk to you about um, like what happened at the Ryder Cup. And I, I this is in my draft. Jim Furyk lets out a long, deep sigh when I ask him after his final round of the Genesis Open if he's open to talk about Patrick Reed. To my surprise, he agrees. 
you're the first one to really come and ask me these questions. <laughs> uh, we lean up against the wall inside the Riviera Country Club clubhouse, and he thinks long and hard about his answers. Furyk knows he's walking on eggshells, even though the Ryder Cup ended months ago. In retrospect, perhaps it shouldn't have been a surprise to see the American Ryder Cup team go down in flames in Paris, considering the United States hasn't won the Cup when the event is contested in Europe in 25 years. But Reed made the aftermath of the Americans even worse by criticizing Furyk in the New York Times. He added that Team Europe was more successful in the Ryder Cup because they were better at removing egos from the situation, but then added in a subsequent interview with the New York Post that he had his reputation hadn't been tarnished by the debacle because he was still 3-0 in singles. If there's one thing I want to understand in talking to Furyk is how Reed's comments might affect his future status on Ryder Cup teams and President's Cup teams. His reputation may not matter as long as he keeps qualifying on points, but what if Reed struggles as he's struggling now and needs someone to advocate for him into the big captain's pick? Look, Furyk said, the one thing I don't want to do is make this situation any worse. These guys are all going to play in the President's Cup team one day and a Ryder Cup team together. Patrick has so much talent, he's going to be on a lot of these teams. Eh, maybe. maybe not. Uh, I told them I've talked to multiple sources who contend that Reed begged Furyk and the U.S. vice captains to let him play with Woods, his childhood hero. What then did Furyk make of the claim that he felt blindsided by the pairing? <sighs> Furyk deep sighed again. He knew who he was playing with, but it's behind us, he said. Look, I see football players yell at each other all the time on the sidelines, and they hash it out and move forward. I'm not holding a grudge. We'll learn for it. But he knew who he was playing with. <laughs> Had Reed reached out to Furyk to clear the air and apologize? Nope. Nope. Furyk said, if he'd like to talk about what happened, I'm amenable to it, but no. Uh, so I think you and I have both heard many things, the same stuff over the years that this was not some blind side of Patrick Reed, that, uh, this was talked about well in advance. This was, uh, in fact, Patrick Reed's idea, uh, that he wanted to play with, um, Patrick. And, and if, you know, there is some good that has come out of this, it's that, uh, Justin Thomas and Jordan Spieth, uh, became, you know, sort of a, a stalwart American uh, pairing. Uh, there, there's some hope, I think, uh, has been sort of talked about through the years that this is the American version of, you know, Seve and Ollie, uh, and that that may not have happened had they just stuck JT with uh, with Ricky Fowler or whatever. In one final wrap up, uh, oh, excuse me, there's still more to come. I'm oh, sorry. I there's so much Patrick Reed stuff that I, I got lost in my notes here. Uh, during this Ryder Cup, Justine went on sort of a, a this is before used golf facts had emerged when justine k reed was tweeting from her own account and if you remember this oh yeah. no one knew it was before i think twitter's verification system so no one really knew like was this actually her uh and she was just sort of like launching into um you know like attacks on on jim furick and and dylan share went up to her and was like you know, hey, like, is this you? Like, you know, or, or is this actually your account? Uh, this is at the Ryder Cup, we asked her. And she was like, um, I don't know and I can't say. Justine's <laughs> response. So not exactly like well hidden. Uh, and then, of course, after the um, the Ryder Cup, uh, Janet Kessler-Corain, uh, Patrick's mother-in-law, went on a Facebook rant uh, criticizing all of the buddy system and how terrible the Americans accounts were. And I, I bring this up only because my favorite quotes. So American fans started attacking her and she said, Oh my, you are fat and you are fat. You are fat and look like a frog. <laughs> you are a cyber bully. And then when people claimed that, um, 
that Patrick played horrible? She said, no, Patrick shot four under on a Friday. Uh, I don't recall Molinari and Fleetwood. They won all their matches. So it's not like they would have beaten them anyway. So on a day when, uh, when things went horribly sideways for Patrick, uh, they were, they were still, Jesus. the deep state was claiming that, uh, you know, that he was worse than he was. So, <laughs> oh, oh, one last thing. Oh, <laughs> uh, Patrick also favorited a tw- the Patrick Reed account, uh, favorited a tweet that said uh let's face it Furick lost this Ryder cup before it was even played his captain's choices speak for themselves jordan needs to grow up Ryder cup is for the your country not yourself and uh in one <laughs> god um phil mickelson said afterwards uh of he, he basically played in the safe way like the week afterwards and said that he described leg off national as almost unplayable and that that kind of golf was a waste of my time. I'm 48. I'm not going to play in tournaments with rough like that anymore. It's a waste of my time. I'm going to play in courses that are playable, that I can be aggressive and attacking and make lots of birdies. The fairways were 14 to 16 yards wide. The fact is they had brutal rough, and it's almost playable, and it's not the way I play. I don't play like that. What a sweet, what a fucking captain's pick then, man. Like, yeah. If that was your attitude, like – Maybe tell Jim, like, hey, I don't think it's in the, our best interest that I play in this Ryder Cup. Dude. Like, like, I'll, I'll be a great cheerleader in this, but this one's not for me. I will say Phil was right about that, too. <laughs> uh, just a couple of historical notes I, uh, for our listeners that might be of note. Uh, the day after the Ryder Cup appeared, Strapped debuted. Oh, wow. Uh, the boys went to Iowa. And also that week, right after the Ryder Cup, was the first time Max Helma appeared on the NLU podcast uh, wow. and told some very funny tales. So, you know, from the ashes of the Ryder Cup, some some good was born. Mm, I love that. I think Max was on way back in the old Amsterdam. I think maybe it was a replay of it or it was, it was when he had just gotten his tour card back. Yes. Uh, the, so the, uh, the one that was with one of Max's best, best, first one's best, microphones. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and not me on speakerphone on my iPhone into a recording device, which happened for like 92 episodes. Sorry about that, guys. Okay. I, so I get, I'm hearing all the stuff we've heard today and recap today. I'm hearing a lot of problems. And yeah. if I'm, this could be like the meme of the guy putting on the clown makeup as he keeps like trying to tell himself things. I'm hearing a lot of problems from guys that aren't on the 2023 United States Ryder Cup team. And uh, look, could Zach Johnson go down as a horrible captain that's most certainly a possibility but patrick reed in the in the locker room not going to be a problem here um you know phil mickelson tiger woods what the effects they've had on it not going to be a problem here you know brooks kepka kind of laying an egg in france you know that that's a possibility ricky fowler laid an egg in france and has not been a great Ryder cup player they're on this team that's maybe if i'm just to hone in on something that has been a problem in the past that's on this team it would be that but all that to say, I don't know. I still am like, I, 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 I'm so back and forth on this. You can't review all of these and like feel great about anyone's chances over there. But I also am like trying pretty hard to give like this U.S. group a fresh chance and a fresh start at at going over there and doing it. If, if they don't win this one, I don't know when they will. I, I, I truly don't um, because it, it, there's something, there's truly something in them going over there and being un- incapable of playing their best golf. I think it'll come down to Xander and Cantlay and Scheffler and Morikawa and Max more than it will like the 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 captain's picks. I know Morikawa is a captain's pick, but uh, I have a feeling it'll come down to more about how they play than the construction and the pairings and all that. But we will see. I, we will see. I think maybe you could make the case that like you can't set up a Dare Manor 
quite like the way you could set up, uh, you know, like this Marco Simone. So like if, if the, the tricks that they're playing with the courses where it's basically like, Oh, you don't have any accurate drivers. Like we're going to stick it to you in that way. Um, you know, I, I think maybe you could say, well, maybe they'll have a better chance at a dare if, if the same thing plays out, but I mean, what, it'll be 35 years at that point that they haven't won in Europe. I mean, I, I kind of like that the you have to go and take it from another team. You have to play their style of golf to to win their Ryder Cup from them. Uh, you know, some of the course stuff can be maybe a little bit comical, and it seems like Marcus Simone could be that. Um, but you know, you gotta gotta show up and play. If that if it's in, uh, that's why the home field advantage is big. You know, Europe figured out how to do it in the midway through in America. You know, in the two thousands when they stomped the U.S. and Oak Hill and you know, stole one of Adina. So, yeah, man, uh, I, I don't know. I'm sure we'll be back and forth 84 more times before we go kick it off in Rome, but this was a really fun look back, uh, because it's just so chaotic. It's such a disaster. I wonder what disaster stories we'll be telling about the 2023 Ryder cup, but, um, unless you have anything else to add, this is one of our lengthiest pods ever. And one of my favorites ever, because, uh, <laughs> it's just a treasure trove of beauties. And, uh, this event just keeps delivering. It's fun. I, it is a little bit of a bummer sometimes to me when people like delete their old tweets because they don't want to, you know, have some take get them canceled or they don't want to get old takes exposed or whatever. Because being able to use Twitter and like go back and see some of what was kind of tweeted during the 2018 Ryder Cup from like me or you or our friends or whatever is a super fun exercise, which is something you can't really do with like the 2006 or 2010 Ryder Cup. Uh, so don't delete old tweets, man. Like, just don't know. Everyone should own their takes. So, uh, nice there's thing. probably still people out there that think I delete uh, tweets, uh, all my Saudi no. tweets. So just just for the record, that's not directed at me in terms of uh, uh, the, the the horrific story no, that was going on around me that was not. Like, if you if you had a – oh, I did forget to mention in the uh, – I, I did mention earlier that, you know, Alan had, Shipnuck had, uh, you know, written the infamous column about how the, you know, things are going to get ugly for the Europeans. And so in the press conference, in the European press conference after the Ryder Cup – uh, Rory kicked off his press conference by saying, "Where's Alan Shipnuck?" Uh, and the uh, and Alan gracefully you know, took his medicine uh, from all the euros and stuff. And I will say, I'm still mad at Alan for that because I, I he, all of American media got lumped in on that in terms mm -hmm. of like all of the angst of the Europeans was directed at anyone that was like coming over or I was openly rooting for the U.S. team and I always am, but like. People thought I also said like, yeah, the, the, it, it's over, and like the Europeans are guaranteed to win this one. I was like, hey, I, I, mean, I said I thought the U.S. would win, but I didn't. That was not my column. I didn't do that, but uh, <laughs> I think we're still recovering from that one. I think so. so. Well, all right, we'll see. That's we'll, it. we'll make an outlandish prediction this time too. Well, I'm so. sure we will as we lead up to it. But uh, this was a blast. Hope everyone enjoyed listening. We'll be back. We'll do. We'll we'll pick back up with major ones here here shortly we still have one recorded that we haven't aired yet and uh, we'll keep going with that series but this was fun to do a little mix up i i have one last thing to leave you with that was holly tommy 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 fleetwood tommy fleetwood molinari molinari all right that's it thank you be the right club be the right club today honey that's better than most how about him? That is better than most. Better than most! Expect